Okay, everybody, welcome back. Welcome to another episode of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. I am here with uh, my friend Narnian in game. Uh, and I'm just realizing as I'm doing this that I forgot to bring my slides up, so that would probably be handy. Let me do that. Uh, we are ready to begin the therapeutic process, well, the, thera the, therape the therapy and explanation process, really, uh, as Tom Bombadil has gotten them out of the Barrow. We were looking at the confrontation between Tom Bombadil and the Barrow White last time, especially the poem. We'll have uh, a few more words on that at the beginning. We had a couple comments on that um, on the discussion board uh, this week, so I want to talk about uh, one of those, and then uh, we're going to uh, we're, and then we're going to run naked on the grass because that's what Tom Bombadil says you should do. So, um, all right, there we are. Got my slides now. Okay, so setting things right, Tom Bombadil has come and he has let in the morning sun, uh, which, as we talked about last time, is, uh, is sort of cheekily uh, uh, from the eastern side of the barrow, right, is where Tom approaches it um, because, you know, uh, like, because he can, right? Uh, so anyway, um, <laughs> let's, uh, so let's, 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 oh, actually, wait, hang on. First, before I start, really, just really quick announcement, wanted to remind you that, um, uh, uh, text moot. The next time we have class, it may be too late to enroll for text moot. We've had a bunch of enrollments this past week. It's been great. Uh, it's going to be really exciting. We're going to have over 50, we're going to have somewhere between 50 and 100 people there. It's going to be super cool. Uh, so I hope that you can, if you can, if you're anywhere near Fort Worth and you think you can get there on Saturday the 13th, I encourage you uh, to sign up. Uh, go to textmoot.org and you can get all the information and the registration links there. Uh, so, uh, uh, so thank you very much. I, I, everybody who's already registered, I'm looking forward to, uh, to meeting you uh, and uh, having a great time uh, down at our little mini, our first little mini conference down in Texas. All right. Um, so, um, um, so let's, uh, let's get back to the Barrow now or to just outside the Barrow. Well, no, let's return to the inside of the barrow first. Evan had uh, this really interesting comment that he shared. Um, is, this is another one of those, which is a part of a longer comment, um, which I had to kind of trim down to fit onto a slide, uh, but uh, this is the gist of it. The, the, but, so, by the way, of course he's referring to Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which we talked about in the Mythgard Academy just uh, a little while ago, a couple months back. Uh, so if you don't know what he's referring to, that's what he's referring to. But if you don't know what he's referring to, you should totally read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy because it is awesome and uh, a hugely influential work, especially for C.S. Lewis, but also for Tolkien. Um, and we talked about that some in the class. So you can read Consolation of Philosophy, one of the most influential works of Western of the Western world, and you can uh, watch our Mythgard Academy uh, discussion of that, and it'll be a lot of fun. But anyway, okay. All right. Uh, Evan says, if we turn once more in the, in the poem to come never here again, leave your barrow empty, and then the next sentence, lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, if the white already is darker than the darkness, or everlastingly dark, that would indicate something highly Boethian, would it not? Because for Boethius, the wicked are evil, because, Boe quoting Boethius here, for if vicious propensity is, as it were, a disease of the soul, like bodily sickness, even as we account the sick in body by no means deserving of hate, but rather of pity, so and much more should they be pitied whose minds are assailed by wickedness, which is more frightful than any sickness. 
this description, even in the James translation of Boethius, seems apt to describe the Barrowite. Yes, Tom may pity the Barrowite, but could the Barrowite have an incurable condition? Could hell, in short, be a state of spiritual desolation? Would this not make the projected fate of the Barrowite begin to make a lot more sense, as well as certain other figures throughout the lore? Then, the barren lands far beyond the mountains, if so, would indeed be a metaphor for spiritual barrenness, more frightful than any sickness, and a place out in the wastes of ruin somewhere, both terrestrial and metaphorical, not near the inland sea, but just out there, wherever out there is. In short, it really, shouldn't ma- it really wouldn't matter where the Barrow White will be relocated, because the Barrow White, if this is correct, is darker than the darkness, already no matter where, already, no matter where he is. He could be cast into the void, into some runish wasteland, or even remain in the Barrow, though the text says otherwise. It wouldn't truly matter as far as the White himself is concerned. It would appear to be far more of a matter of getting the White away where his incurable disease of wickedness can't harm others. Um, I entirely agree with Evan on this. I agree that that, um, that Boethian passage does point to one of the, the concepts upon which uh, Tolkienian pity is based. Um, that's why we are encouraged to pity the wicked, not despite their wickedness, but because of their wickedness, right? It is because Gollum is such a, not only a wretched creature, but a miser- but a wicked creature, right? And it, because it is chiefly through his wickedness that his wretchedness comes. After all, what separates Gollum from the other hobbits, right? You know, from the hobbits, uh, either the, you know, the hobbit the proto-hobbit creatures uh, that he grew up with, his family, or the other hobbits that we know, right? The, the principal thing is his choice to go down the path to wickedness, right? Um, and that's what leads him to his wretched life of miserable isolation uh, and, you know, darkness and nasty furtive eating and all that kind of thing underneath the mountain, right? Um, so, so, yes, that same uh, pity for evil because it's evil uh, is... I do, I do agree. Something that I think that we can see um, in uh, in Tom's sort of condemnation of the Barrow White. And uh, Evan, I think you get really well at what I was trying sort of fumblingly to say, that I think that that the sort of the casting out of the Barrow White is fundamentally metaphorical. But I agree, it's, it's, it, that doesn't mean it's not also geographical. Um, the primary thing that I was trying to get at when I said I think the emphasis is more metaphorical is that I think that if we read that passage and say, you know, far beyond the mountains, if our, if our reaction to that is to try to, like, pinpoint on the map exactly where is the place that this Barrow White is headed to, I think we're kind of missing the point, right? I think that's not what it's about. It's about the fact that he is, um, uh, he's going away out there. As uh, as Evan says, somewhere off into the indeterminate distance, that has, of course, the, the sort of spiritual moral significance, right? But it also does mean, uh, and, and again, I, I agree. I agree exactly with Evan's interpretation there. His casting out is not a punishment so much as a so much as a kind of quarantine. Um, that also seems to me quite likely. I mean, after all, again, like the the Barrow White, Tom's not doing anything to it that it hasn't already done to itself, right? Remember that the whole spell of the Barrowite, the, the spells of the Barrowites were all oriented towards drawing the hobbits into the state of, you know, cold and and misery that it itself was already suffering from, 
right? It's already by Tom, Tom's not do like when Tom brings in the light uh, and tells it to go away. He's not like increasing its suffering or something like that. Again, he's not increasing its punishment. All he's doing is removing it, right? You will never be here to waylay any hobbits ever again, right? Because I'm sending you way far away into the indefinite distance. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, so I see some of you, like Ethelod, wanting to talk uh, yet about who the Barrowites are. Wait for it. We're almost there. Um, though, let me warn you in advance, we have not all that much evidence about this, so it's kind of hard to draw firm conclusions. But anyway, uh, well, some of the evidence that we do get, we get here today, or we get in the passages we're going to look at today. So, um, anyhow. Okay, but anyway, so thanks, Evan, for that. Putting that into a Boethian context, I think, is really, really helpful, uh, and certainly does emphasize that element of of pity, which is there even in the banishment, right? Um, and I think that that's uh, um, that's really important uh, to remember, um, as well as again thinking about how this works in both ways, right? This works both as uh, metaphor and as uh, literal outcasting, right? So, uh, so very good. Thank you for that. All right. So let's get back to therapy. The white is gone, right? All right. At these words, there was a cry and part of the inner end of the chamber fell in with a crash. Then there was a long trailing shriek fading away into an unguessable distance. And after that silence, come friend Frodo said, Tom, let us, let us get out onto clean grass. You must help me bear them. Together they carried out Mary, Pippin, and Sam. As Frodo left the barrow for the last time, he thought he saw a severed hand wriggling still like a wounded spider in a heap of fallen earth. Tom went back in again, and there was a sound of much thumping and stamping. When he came out, he was bearing in his arms a great load of treasure, things of gold, silver, copper, and bronze, many beads and chains and jeweled ornaments, he climbed the green barrow and laid them all on top in the sunshine. Okay, uh, so uh, a couple things here. Uh, f- first, one little side note uh, for those of you Lotro players who are here. I suspect that the reason that you find giant spiders, uh, you know, evil, the reason you're attacked by evil spiders in some of the barrows and the barrow downs in the game is that line. The comparison of the uh, of the severed hand to a wounded spider, uh, like the concept is suggested, and that's kind of enough to go with. I suspect that that actually entered into it. Um, but um, anyway, okay. So uh, so what do we see here? First, notice first paragraph. We have the actual banishment of the uh, the actual banishment of the white, right? Um, and. One thing that I would observe. Do we have any evidence here that um, the white is incorporeal? I kind of think so. Or at least the spirit that's leaving seems to be incorporeal. Um, He doesn't see anything. Part of the inner end of the chamber falls in with a crash, right? I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Exactly. Uh, that is the, the connection between the cave-in on the inner side. and Because this, this is not, you know, like 
the cave-in that's caused by Tom Bombadil, you know, Kool-Aid manning the side of the barrow, right? That's not, that's already happened. And the light of the rising sun has come flowing in uh, from the, um, from the east. And so by the inner end of the chamber, I'm assuming that means inner, like on, on the opposite side from where Tom Bombadil is standing framed by the sunlight, right? Uh, so I think that that's got to be sort of where the white is over there. Um, one has to think that when Tom, ba- as soon as Tom Bombadil's voice is heard, because you can remember they, they hear it before they see it, right? Uh, you know, Frodo can hear him singing through the walls before uh, he breaks the walls open uh, and uh, uh, and the light breaks in. So I, I suspect that at that point, the Barrowite started to back away across the chamber. I would expect him to back away across the chamber. So I, 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 I assume that the uh, the the caving in of the inner part of the the inner end of the chamber is where the barrel white is, but I don't know exactly what that means. Um, uh, I don't know why that part of the chamber falls in. I don't think that the by you know when when we hear the long trailing shriek fading away into an ungustable distance that it's like retreating underground um we have no real reason to suspect that the barrow is that large right i mean again i know the uh barrows in the game often are the tips of like deep and multi-leveled subterranean excavations but that uh is not what i would expect to find inside of one of the barrows actually described in the book um so, uh, yeah, Hrothgar is wondering if it could, you know, could it be a result of its being banished? It, it, it could be literally blasting its way out. That's possible. But again, see, I, I incline against a reading of this passage that says the Barrow White in a physical form, because like he clearly had, or at least was animating a physical form, right? Frodo felt actual hands, saw eyes, right? Felt actual hands on him. Uh, and there was, a, there was an actual physical arm that could have its hand broken off, right? Reaching for the actual physical sword lying across the hobbit's neck. So the, 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 the fact that the Barrow White was using a body, a physical, tangible body to interact with stuff is pretty clear, right? What is less clear to me is whether the Barrow White is taking that body with it when it leaves, right? Leaving it clearly is, right? And of course, we we know to expect that because Tom Bombadil has issued several uh, statements in the imperative mood, and we know what happens when Tom Bombadil speaks in the imperative mood, right? Um, at least in his little domain. So, the Barrowite, the Barrowite is leaving. Um, I don't think we can imagine the crash on the inner part, you know, because like that's where the White physically was, and it's busting through the wall on the other side and running off away. I, I don't think so because the fact that Frodo describes it as fading away into an unguessable distance, right? It would be a little anticlimactic if that unguessable if that unguessable distance was just down the hill on the opposite side of the barrow, right? Uh, I mean, that is to say, I don't think it's physically running uh, uh, away and retreating in that way. Um, I think that the fading away into an unguessable distance is the much swifter uh, and much more direct retreat 
of its spirit. Um, and that what he's hearing, what Frodo is hearing when he hears the, the shriek fading away, um, is not even necessarily a sort of a purely physical sensation, right? Um, that he's perceiving its departure uh, in a sort of a more spiritual sense. Um, Mad Violinist, I, um, I agree that um, that seems likely. Okay, so a couple theories here. Uh, Kate Rowanite says, could Tom have collapsed the ceiling to firmly bury the body? You know, he is the master of, of the hills, absolutely. Could Tom Bombadil cause that cave-in at the same time that he makes that command? Could uh, burying the previously animated physical form of the Barrow White, could burying that in, you know, earth and stone be part of the banishment process, you know, that um, uh, that Tom Bombadil is doing. Yeah, that seems to me quite possible. And uh, uh, the, mad, the mad violinist suggestion that, that it's the final breaking of the spell of the barrow that Tom will prevent him from returning by piling the treasure on the mound. Right, exactly. That it's part of that process. We will see Tom, and we'll look at this, I think, in the next slide, um, Tom explaining that what he's doing with the treasure is explicitly intended as a kind of spell, right? I mean, he's he is performing a, a kind of rite of his own, which is explicitly designed to prevent the white ever coming back. So it does seem... So, Mad Violinist, I think I would agree with your reading. Um, I mean, others are plausible as well, but to me that seems likeliest, that it's part of the breaking of the spell of the barrow, um, that it's it being the white, that its tomb should be uh, buried under in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, JJ, JJ says, the distance uh, uh, into which, the unguessable distance into which the, the voice is fading is a metaphysical distance, not, a, uh, not, not just a, a literal distance as we hear it, as it's sprinting away on its bony little feet, right? Uh, that, I think, is not the thing we're supposed to be thinking of here. Um, yeah, good. Um, excellent. Um, hmm. Well, that's a really interesting observation, Aruaran. Aruaran. I'm getting a little better at saying your name. Um, So Aruran is remembering the description of the wail of the ringwraith that they heard in the in the wood below Woodhall, right? Um, which is described as a long drawn wail came down on the wind and ended on a high piercing note. Uh, and this description, a long trailing shriek fading away into an unguessable distance, it, you know, points out that they don't exactly match, but it does seem uh, kind of similar. Um, Yes, I similar. I think um, certainly there is a sense in which they both belong to the same kind of category, right? That is to say, creepy, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, creepy, uncanny shrieks uttered by evil spirits, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a similarity there. I don't really know what to do with the comparison exactly. I mean, the <clears throat> the kind of superficial similarities, that is to say, like the the similar kind of pattern of words that's used to describe them, does seem to me a little superficial. I mean, I think that it's uh, I mean, like 
long is used for both of them, right? But that's not, I mean, there are lots of wails or shrieks that would be long, right? That doesn't necessarily uh, kind of, uh, kind of, kind of uh, connect them. But anyway, I, 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 I do think it's well, it's well remembered though. Um, because I think that there is that sense with the, 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 the main connection of Ruaran I would make is, uh, <clears throat> and I'm determined by the way, to casually and, uh, uh, effortlessly say your full name. That's my one of my goals. Uh, we're a year in, and I'm almost there. Um, anyway, as I was saying, the the main connection that I, the, the reason I think it's 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 interesting and, and and good to recall that other one here is that both at the very least, both of them have uh, a sort of spiritual as well as or perhaps instead of physical force. Right? It's not just about the sound of the. Uh, of the Ringwraith's cry. Um, you know, the adaptation of the Ringwraith's cry into the Jackson films was one of my favorite little touches. I thought the shriek that they did worked really well as far as capturing kind of the uncanniness. It's not literally the same, right? Remember, Frodo says there were words in that cry. So uh, what's being described in the book is much more complex than what they depict on the screen. I like the effect that the uh, the on-screen scream on screen scream had um bec- i mean that kind of like jumping recoiling from it, it gives at least a kind of a faint echo uh of what is described and i don't know how one would convey exactly the sense that uh frodo and the hobbits are are said uh, to have uh right in response uh to that call um but i do think that uh it's clear, and it will become, of course, much clearer later on in the Return of the King when that shriek becomes much more common, uh, you know, much more frequently heard, anyway, and much more powerful at the same time. That it does not—it's not merely physically piercing, right? It does not cause merely physical startlement or discomfort. It—it uh, it has a—it has an oppressive spiritual effect, um, and so the 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 fact that it is in that sense connected to or similar to the long trailing shriek of the barrow white spirit that we hear i think that, that to me that's the real link between the two of them yeah um yeah okay um yeah, Tilly and I, I so agree. You know, I mean, uh, that uh, so many of the issues that people have with the film is, is just part of the intrinsic difficulty of, uh, of interpreting some of these literary concepts into a visual format. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, a lot of people get, at the time especially, got a little bit impatient with Christopher Tolkien for the statement that he released. I don't know how many of you remember this, but um, the statement that he released wherein he famously was like, I think that my father's books are particularly ill-suited to film adaptation, and I uh, so I don't support the project, and I think it's a bad idea. And everybody, he got kind of uh, pilloried for that. I mean, basically, he was kind of depicted by many as just like, oh, look at Christopher Tolkien, the old fuddy-duddy who, you know, doesn't have any truck with this newfangled, you know, uh, uh, moving picture thing, right? I mean, that w- there was kind of a lot of that in response to Christopher Tolkien's comments at the time, uh, back in the you know back in the two thousands. Um, but he also kind of does have a point. There is a lot in these books that is really hard to do because a lot of it that relies upon 
effects that are created in ways which are really particular to this medium, right? You know, film can, you know, a visual adaptation can create different kinds of effects and in different ways. There are other things that it does especially well um, that books can sometimes do less well, but it's, they're not the same things, <laughs> right? Uh, and so there are ways in which it's, it's very difficult and some really, really big challenges. Um, and there are many ways in which I think even some of the the kind of clumsier techniques, and I, w- I would include this, the, the Nazgul Shriek, even though, as I said, I loved it. I thought it was really effective. But it's still like a really effective kind of approximation, right? It's still obviously a transposition. Um, you know, there's there's that sense of the Ringwraith scream in the book is to the Nazgul Shriek in the film as like an orchestral performance is to a, you know, piano adaptation of that same symphony, right? You see what I mean? I mean, it's like that. It loses something, but they're, they still do capture something. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, good. Um, all right. But yeah, sorry, I'm not. I, I'm not gonna get too distracted in doing a general discussion of the films. How did I get on that? The Nazgul Shriek. Oh my goodness. Okay, I got to be more careful. But anyway, still, it's it's all good. Um, okay, Ethelon is asking, what reason would the Barrow White whale uh, accept to sort of announce its end? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it has much of a a choice exactly. I mean, I don't think it's being compelled to wail exactly, but I think it's just sort of a, a spontaneous expression of its rage, frustration, anger, despair, all of those things that we saw in it already, right? You know, in its attitude towards the warmth and the light and and uh, uh, and, and life and all those things that it uh, no longer has and now hates and envies and now is being evicted by them and is... Um, and also anguish, JJ. I think that's also, that's also legitimate. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay. Let us get out onto clean grass. You must help me bear them. One small little point here. Where are they going? They're going on top of the barrow, right? That is... I think it's important to remember that the Barrow White, the Barrow, and the Barrow White don't, like, desecrate the land, right? This is not, the Barrow itself, the bar- the hill, the Barrow, the mound even, which is the whole purpose of it is to have the... It's not evil, intrinsically, right? The grass that's growing on the roof above Frodo's head is perfectly natural, wholesome grass, Right, there is nothing evil about this particular domain. Um, it's uh, I think this is a good thing to remember, especially in light of the, um, especially in light of the way that uh, we think about um, the because we, we talked before about the you know past the barrow on the west side right which could lead to the suspicion that like well because like the east side of the barrow is cursed or something right that it's just like an evil place it's not that it's an evil place what they're talking about what clearly what he's referring to is the sort of the power and authority of the of the white itself right it's, 
it's not about the place. It's not an evil place. In fact, it's going to be a healing place now that it's now that the fog, which was a product of the spell of the Barrowite, right? So you know, so basically, now that the Barrowite is gone, the Barrowite and all of its power and influence are removed, and all you have left is the sun shining down on green grass on a nice tall hill. It's all good, right? Um, and I don't think it's good because it's been cleansed by Tom Bombadil exactly. I mean, it has in a sense in that because he's evicted the 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 white, right? So it's not like he's unconnected with it. Um, but he didn't have to hallow the grass. All he did was remove the pall, like blowing away the fog, and then the sun comes, right? That's all, in a sense, that's kind of all he did. Uh, and I think that that's, that's important. And Gilgon theory, yes, this is w- one of the reasons why I'm thinking of this. One of the reasons why, I'm, why I find this particularly interesting is that we do see places where the evil that has been residing in a land corrupts the land. Um, whether it's something like the desolation of Smaug uh, that we saw in The Hobbit, or of course the even more dreadful desolation of the land in and around Mordor. Um, which, Gilgonther, you're right to say, we're told is never going to be clean. Right? There are places where stuff will just never, ever grow again. Or it will take, you know, the whole, the whole land will have to change before that will ever happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Marianne was thinking of Mordor as well. So, but yep, yeah, so the Barrowites, the Barrows aren't like that, right? Um, the Barrowites have not twisted the land itself. Um, yeah, good, good. All right. So they carry them out. The severed hand. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what's your name? Skirk7x on Twitter. Um, yeah, you're right to point to the, like the, 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 pointing to the passage of Shelob as something which is just not represented in the film. Again, that's something that's really hard to capture. You can do a great job of, making a really huge, scary, horrifying spider on screen, right? You can make the fight between Sam and Sheila work really well, and it was pretty good. I wasn't... I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it either. I mean, I thought I thought they... There was there were a bunch of things that they accomplished effectively there. But yeah, I mean, the whole paragraph that begins with their age-long she had dwelt, right? How are you going to convey that? Unless you're going to have somebody explain it laboriously in exposition, right? Um, which works in a book, but does not work so well uh, uh, on screen. Anyway, good. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay. I have a feeling there was one I skipped there. Um... Yeah, Matt, that's a really good point. Uh, Matt points out another uh, interesting difference between reading the book and seeing the thing on film. Um, uh, Matt points out that if we were to see, if if we were watching a film, right, and we see the barrow partially collapse within, uh, we would want to understand, he says, the engineering aspect of it, right? That is, you know, so like, 
how much of it collapsed? Why did only that collapse? When we go outside, are we going to see the part of the barrow sunken down right where it collapsed, right down over the over the burying place? Um, and in the text, we don't have to worry about how much earth and stone fell. Maybe it was a small fall. Maybe it was the whole thing collapsed. Maybe part of the half of the barrow is caved in, and they just don't mention it in the text because it's not important, right? Whereas these, when you're just visually showing the whole scene, you've got to make those decisions, right? Uh, you don't get to just... Uh, kind of forget about it but anyway okay that's a good point um a couple of you are asking me about the implications of the non-corruption of the land around the barrow does this mean that it's an evil that is either unlike sauron's evil or just of a a much large uh, lesser stature um is it a, is it, a, you know, Blue Wizard is asking, is it um, a reflection of the strength of the evil, evil or the length of time it was there? Um, I'm going to punt on those questions. Uh, or rather, I'm going to judiciously delay answering those questions um, because we can't make a comparison with stuff we haven't looked at yet. Right. Um, uh, so what I will say is, do let's keep the barrow in mind. Uh, I don't want to flash forward because we're not looking at those passages in, in their contexts yet. But we can retain this uh, in our uh, steel trap memories for when we do get to other references, when we come to other places in the text where we will see the corruption of an evil resident and see if we can do some comparing and contrasting there. Right? That, that would be the proper way to do it. So that's why I'm not going to answer that question. So, all right, let's keep going. Um, uh, let's uh, let's keep going. So, where were we going? Oh, yeah, the severed hand. We're gonna, we we didn't talk about the severed hand. As Frodo left the barrow, we're still on the first slide. As Frodo left the barrow for the last time, he thought he saw a severed hand wriggling still like a wounded spider in a heap of fallen earth. Um. It's wriggling still. That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Why should the hand be wriggling? The barrow white's gone. In almost any assessment, you'd think that the the agency, right, that is animating whatever body it was using. I mean, we established, I think we established, we at least have some pretty good evidence, some pretty good reasons to think that the Barrow White was inhabiting a, f- a physical form, right? Inhabiting mind, right? Um, the fact that it is, that is left bits of it behind suggests to me further that this is not just a manifestation, but an actual thing, right? Let me explain what I mean. Some creatures, like the Valar, for instance, the Maiar, they are spiritual beings. They don't have bodies. They're not, you know, they didn't have a mom and a dad, at least not in the later mythology. Uh, they, they, the Valar do have kids, and some of the Maya are their kids in the early version of the mythology, but Tolkien cuts that. I'm pretty sure but that was going away. Somebody remind me. In the 1937 Quenta, in, um, what's it called, The Lost Road, do, uh, do they still have kids? Do Manway and Varda still have kids? in that story? I don't remember. I don't think so. I think they're gone already. The parenting thing. But anyway, whatever. 
point is it doesn't matter. They don't have bodies, okay? They're just spiritual creatures, but they can manifest bodies, and you may remember uh, the, disc- the the explanation that Tolkien gives of this in the Valaquenta in the Silmarillion. He compares it to us putting on clothes, right? We can adorn ourselves in certain ways so that we, like, take on a particular appearance, you know, for the sake of, like, meeting people. And that's the same reason that they they have the same relationship with their with the bodies that are manifested and with which elves and men at times have interacted um they have the same interaction with those bodies as we have with our clothes right it's just raiment that they put on and then they take it off uh if they want to and go unclad meaning they just wander about the world as invisible spirits that don't have bodies um so um yes it's true fourth dauntless that in those bodies, it is possible for them to procreate. Million did, right? We know that that's certainly possible. Um, and not to mention, there are others who did, right? Like much more grossly ungoliant. Speaking of Shelob, as we were just talking about, anyway, that's they can they can put on the but but the point is those bodies are not intrinsic to them. They're a sort of a manifestation that they choose, right? Um, I don't get too much into the details of that. The point is they don't have the the, the bodies that they have. They're not like real bodies. So, assuming, or not assuming, if we conclude that the Barrow White had a physical form, which he seems to have had, right? Grabs Frodo, presumably carries him down, physical hand on the sword hilt, uh, all that stuff, right? Um, if the Barrow White has a physical form, there are one of two possibilities. Either A, it has. It is a spiritual being that has um, uh, has manifested uh, itself in a physical form, right? Like the Velar can do, or it can, um, uh, or it can. It could be animating another body, like the body of something else, right? That's much more unusual. We don't see that kind of thing happening very often at all. Um, but it's possible. For instance, werewolves, right? Werewolves are the spirits, uh, evil spirits that have been brought in and kind of shoved into the bodies of monstrous wolves so that the monster, the physical body of the, the, the beast of the wolf is animated by the malicious and intelligent spirit, right? That is, uh, uh, that has been bound to it in ways which are unpleasant for wolf and spirit alike. Now, um, so this is a question. Is which one happened with the Barrow Whites? Were they spirits that are just like, I am manifesting itself, and I choose to manifest myself as a desiccated corpse, right? Because I can, right? And it's because it's kind of me, right? Uh, I mean, you know, you manifest yourself, it's like a manifestation of your self-image, right? Well, that's it, self-image, right? That's, 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 that's what it is. Um, and, um, so it would not shock me to find that it was just a manifestation in that way. But if it's just a manifestation, um, why would its hand still be there after it's run away? Right, I I don't think that would happen. I can't imagine that that would happen. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, Mad violinist. Could you, could you give me that quote? Um, that, uh, that passage, I was just, I was just thinking about that passage you were referring to. It's from Tom Bombadil's stories, right? Um, if you could, if you could, if you could just uh, quickly type in that sentence, uh, I'd appreciate that. That'd be, that'd be helpful. Um, okay. So this seems to me, therefore, the fact that its hand is still there suggests to me that this was a physical corpse that was animated by an evil spirit. So that would suggest, therefore, that uh, uh, werewolf spirit is to wolf as Barrow White spirit is to corpse. Right. That's... That would seem to me to be the safer conclusion there, but um, uh, uh, but why is it still wriggling? I don't understand why it's still wriggling. Um, yeah, I can't I can't think of a good answer to that question. It doesn't seem to fit either model, really. JJ's wondering if whatever animated the body is distinct from the evil spirit. Or if possibly the arm and hand are not exactly the same. Yeah... Hrothgar is wondering if it might be lingering traces of the white spell after long occupation of the barrow, possibly. Um, I can't help but think... Ah, thank you, Matt. Matt, Oh, good. Matt and Fourth Dauntless, uh, both of them, found the quote for for me. Uh, The quote was, A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Yes. Shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. That's um, uh, again. That's from Tom Bombadil's stories about, you know, as he goes back over time, right? What he's seen there in that in that area. Um, so the stirring of bones does. So uh, the 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 shadows come. You know, the the so the the spirits, the shadows, the evil spirits, um, have entered the Barrow Downs. They've they're they're immigrants. Right, they're not natives, so this is definitely not dead folks spontaneously rising. This is not like a pet cemetery situation, right? That seems explicitly clear. These spirits came in from out of town, and they stirred the bones, right? They stirred the mounds. Um, so that certainly seems to suggest that these are bodies, bones, skeletons being invested with animation and power by these spirits that are coming in. Right? Okay. Um, Yeah, Hrothgar is saying that he thinks we'll see from Tom's actions that the Barrow White is gone, but there's still a cleansing need to banish the last traces of its presence. Yeah, and Hrothgar, here I'm reminded also of the discussion last time we had about the hand, right? Um, The significance of hands... Uh, both in the uh, in the Barrow White's song 
and of course in the physical enactment of the of the ritual that it was attempting to enact right um and the 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 way in which the hand seemed to be connected with with power with authority right the severed wriggling hand that frodo sees on the floor of the barrow seems to me to be to sort of to 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 suggest to be connected with this idea of the the power of the barrow white that has been broken right or that is you know uh Hrothgar, as you remind us is is passing away but it's not snuffed out like a candle right the barrow white is fleeing but that doesn't mean that all of its power is totally gone that doesn't mean that all of its spells are immediately snapped out as if they never were um and uh, Hrothgar, I agree with you that Tom's further actions suggest if they just walk away right now, if they just picked up Frodo and or Mary Pippin and Sam and just walked off, right, and didn't do anything else, that the power of the Barrow White would not be completely broken. Tom's chased it off, right, but has not necessarily ended its authority. There is a sense in which, symbolically, right, its hand still remains over the... Uh, the barrow, right? Its its hand is still present in the barrow, literally and figuratively, right? But the hand of the barrow white is like twitching and wriggling and spasming, right? It's not doing well. Uh, it's uh, um, it's only mostly dead, however. So uh, uh, so they, they've got to they've got to be careful about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. <laughs> and yes, I, uh, I, uh, Stephen Walters, I think Stephen, uh, I, it, it, it's, it's not wholly unlike chickens running with their heads cut off, which by the way, I can personally confirm does in fact happen. Lived on a farm when I was a kid. We slaughtered chickens one time. One did in fact get away. I was indeed chased around my own backyard by a headless chicken spurting blood out of the stump of its neck uh, at one point in my life, which was actually kind of funnier than it sounds. Um, But uh, yeah, that totally happens. Um, But again, I think here the point is not necessarily like naturalism, right? I I don't think that that's the point exactly. Um, Again, I think it's, uh, I think the the significance of that is more um, emblematic um the the uh that image the severed hand wriggling still like a wounded spider in a heap of fallen earth that snapshot that that's like a snapshot of the state of things right now right um yeah yeah um yeah good all right I'm really interested, by the way, in the fact that Tom Bombadil is not just scattering the treasure, he's sunning it. And that has an interesting history. I don't know how much of that history is relevant, but it's interesting. Um, Oh, sorry, Matt asked, do I think it's emblematic or highlighting the horror of the scene? Both, 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that it's an emblem. Um, but I, I think it's like, it is such an opposite emblem for that moment because it's so horrifying. Um, Tarloniel, yes, exactly. He's trying to turn the gold into gold. That's just what you do. Okay, because everybody knows, everybody knows that the effect of the, one of the effects of the light of the planets shining upon Earth is to create precious metals. This is, this is well known, right? Each of the, each of the seven planets, each of the seven fixed stars uh, has that effect upon the soil of the Earth. Uh, so when, um, uh, when the light of Mars, right, predominates over a particular region, uh, it's likely to have an influence over the human population, i.e. in creating wars and things like that. But it's also um, uh, going to create lead in the ground. Or not lead, iron. Saturn creates lead, of course. Right? It's going to create iron in the ground. Um, the sun creates gold. And uh, you can see at various it's like a, a sort of a fairy tale motif like you 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 lay your gold out in the sun you sun your gold in order to cleanse it of its impurities right you want to you want to you know gild your gold right with a, with a little extra sunlight um and so yes valori what we see here is tom bombadil scattering fairy gold on top of the mount um which is, uh, which is like, um, uh, the mound, the barrow mound, which is like a, a fairy mound. It's not exactly a fairy mound, but it has some similarities to a fairy mound, right? Um, so, um, anyway, okay. Like I said, I don't know how relevant that is. I can't think that Tom Bombadil is laying it out in the sun in order to increase its monetary value, right? Um, that he's trying to sun, but I can't, uh, uh, I can't uh, really get away from the fact that he's doing it, right? And and uh, uh, laying it all out in the sunshine. Now it's. Just as likely that it's, you know Tolkien's not thinking of that particular property of sunlight, uh, but rather that he's thinking of just the whole light versus darkness thing that we got inside the barrow, right? So the, this treasure, which has been brooded on and influenced by a barrow white for a long time, right? Just as a couple of you were talking about um, uh, the dragon treasure, of course, and the uh, the the influence of a treasure of, uh, over which a dragon has brooded for so long. Uh, and Matthew Hershenrutter is asking, um, would things have been different if Thorin and company had spread out the horde of, 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 of Smaug uh, on the mountainside uh, first, right, before they, um, you know, stuffed it in their pockets? Uh, who knows? Couldn't hurt, <laughs> right? But it does seem perhaps that it is something like that as well. That certainly seems more in line uh, kind of symbolically with what Tom Bombadil has been doing, um, than we've, uh, uh, than we've, than we've seen. So, okay. Hey, I know. Let's look at slide two. <laughs> doesn't, that, doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. We can't be stopped. There he stood, 
with his hat in his hand and the wind in his hair, and looked down upon the three hobbits that had been laid on their backs upon the grass at the west side of the mound. Raising his right hand, he said in a clear and commanding voice, "'Wake now, my merry lads, wake and hear me calling. Warm now be heart and limb, the cold stone is fallen. Dark door is standing wide, dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open.'" Okay, <laughs> I see you guys on the Twitch chat making fun of me. Half of you are saying, hey, two slides, and uh, James is saying, look out, there's a poem. I get it, I get it. Um, okay, couple things first, then the poem. And you, it's going to be so efficient, it's going to be amazing. Okay, so um, what do you notice there in that first paragraph? He's laid them out on their backs upon the grass at the west side of the mount. The direction, again, is seems to be important. And it's interesting because the sun is coming from the east, right? So he's not laid the hobbits in the sunshine. Instead, he's laid the hobbits facing west. And again here, remember, just as I was suggesting before, that the whole east side of the barrow thing, um, given the way that Tom talks about the grass, the green grass growing up on top of the mount, uh, the east side. Of, I don't think that the east side of the mound is itself sort of specially magical. Nor do I think that the west, you know, was full of evil magic. Nor do I think that the east side of the mound is intrinsically like like that patch of earth. Right, is full of good magic in the same way. But rather, both the east and the west side are rather uh, pointing towards the to outside influences. Right uh, on the east side of the barrow, you are facing, you are facing the shadow. That is where the shadow came from, right? It's, so it's the barrow white's influence, which is exerted more on the eastern side than on the western side of the barrow. Why? Because there is another power, right? Some other power had a hand in the west side of the barrow, right? The side that is facing towards Elvenholm and Valinor, uh, to, you know, the light in the West, apparently that's more, that has some influence, right? Tom suggested it in his advice before they left. He suggests it again in his laying the three comatose hobbits on the West side of the Mount. Um, how does that work? Who exactly is doing it? But we have no idea. All we know is that again, but based upon those two, on the words and actions of Tom Bombadil, Apparently it matters. Apparently it makes a difference. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Rothgar has pointed out also that the eastern side of the barrow is now scattered and full of lumpy treasure, uh, so it would have been extremely inconsiderate of Tom Bombadil to have laid them out on top of uh, the very uncomfortable treasure that he has sprayed over there, uh, uh, spread out over there in the sunlight, right? Um Perfectly, perfectly fair point. Raising his right hand, he said in a clear hand again, right? Here's Tom's hand lifted over the hobbits, just as the Dark Lord was going to lift his hand over Dead Sea and Withered Land, just as, uh, and remember, their own hands were going to be, you know, cold be hand and heart and bone. Their own hands were going to be cold. Uh, The hand of the white was was reaching over them, right, to grab the sword and, and cut off their heads. And now... Tom raises his hand over them and, of course, talks about the hand. Uh, you know, dead hand is broken. That's literally true, right? Uh, 
you know, when Tom says it, it's clearly metaphorical. And yet it's, it's almost amusingly, literally the case. Remember, even broken. Remember we talked about the, the interesting significance of that, that the hand wasn't sliced off, it wasn't chopped off, it was broken off when Frodo uh, hit it, with, uh, hit, hit, hit the wrist with the sword. Um, and that word, broken, is again repeated by Tom Bombadil uh, here, dead hand is broken. But here I am, look at me, skipping uh, to line three. Wake now, my merry lads, wake and hear me calling. Um, the repetition of wake. So not only does he give them a command in the imperative mood, he repeats it twice, right? Um, wake, wake. Um, okay, so we're in the imperative mood three times in the first line. Wake, wake, hear, right? Tarloniel, that's a really cool point, isn't it? She says, it seems strange that it's wake and hear me calling, not the reverse, right? Hear me calling and wake up. Um, yeah, no, those are two different processes, right? First, wake. Second, hear me calling. Because the command to wake is not the same as the call that he's giving to them. Um, this is not the last time that we will see somebody brought back from a comatose near-death situation by somebody calling to them and their spirits responding to the call of the one calling to them, right? Um, so those seem to be separate processes, the waking and the hearing him call. Warm now be heart and limb, the cold stone is fallen. Um... Here, he is... Oh, I don't know. Parodying? That doesn't seem quite right. Reversing, certainly. The White's own poem, right? Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Never more to wake on stony bed. Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Right? That was the White's song. Um... Cold be hand and heart and bone, and Tom echoes that. Remember, we talked about the verb mood there, right? How the white starts off by singing in the subjunctive, right? Cold be, let it be cold. It's not a direct command, right? But a statement that the thing should come to pass, right? Um, and uh, so, yes, Mad Violinist, this is a direct counter of the white's spell that it was holding over uh, the, again, got the, the different hand, right? The hand of blessing of Tom Bombadil, uh, Marianne, as you say, instead of the, uh, the, the, the hand of death, uh, that was crawling towards them over the ground like a spider. Warm now. I love the now, right? Cold be hand and heart and, uh, be hand and heart and bone. Warm now be heart and limb. The cold stone is fallen. Uh, the, the, the cold stone features heavily in those first couple lines, right? Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Never more to wake on stony bed. Stony bed, which is presumably cold, right? Um, the cold stone was what held them. It was the bed upon which they were sleeping. But it was also like the thing that they were supposed to be emulating, 
right? Let their warm and living flesh become like cold stone. And you will recall, of course, that cold stone is one of those things that they were told not to mess around with by Tom Bombadil, unless they have hearts that never falter, right? Um, And interesting, remember back to that line, right? Uh, Don't be messing with old stone or... uh, uh, what uh, Old whites or cold stone. What, What does he say? Somebody remind me of that line. Somebody look that line up too. Unless she be uh, 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 fearless folks with hearts that never falter. Frodo did have to be somebody whose heart never faltered. And fortunately for all of them, Frodo's heart did not falter. Even under the direct temptation, even when the ring piles on with its own direct temptation on top of the spell of the barrel. Right. So it's actually kind of interesting. Like, it's not to say that it was a good idea for Frodo to go messing about with whites and and barrows, but um, uh, but it's uh, it's still like it turned out to be okay that he did so. Um, Yeah, good. Um, Don't you go meddling with old stone or cold whites or prying in their houses unless you be strong folk with hearts that never falter. Thanks, James. Appreciate that. That's that's exactly the line. Old stone or cold whites. Um, So he's uh, he's combining those two with the cold stone, picking up directly on the image that the the the, um, you know, cold be sleep under stone. That the white was uh, was was giving dark door is standing wide. Dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open. Okay. Dark door is standing wide. Dead hand is broken. Both of those things, I think, are similarly... On the one hand, he is describing what is there. Hey, look, there's a broken hand wriggling in the dirt right over there, right? And hey... There's a dark door in this barrow that is standing wide, right? I mean, really wide. I blew it open, right? Um, it is wide. It can. It's it's standing wide open and cannot be closed again, right? Because Tom Pompadour blew it off its stony hinges. Um, so, both of those things, literal descriptions of the scenery, right? But obviously, more have have a greater significance if we didn't attach to them a greater significance yet in our earlier looking at those passages at the sort of the prose mentions of these things tom's uh, uh, appeal to them in his song should certainly make us think more metaphorically of this right um both of them work the dark door is standing wide. The dark door that was closing them in, right? That that remember Frodo's waking up and realize the horror, the terror that he feels when he was in a barrow. A barrow white had taken him, and perhaps already he had fallen under the terrible spells of the barrow white. Um, so the door was closed. He was trapped. The door is open, right? Escape has already happened. The power of the dead hand is already broken, and, of course, as is the literal, um, the literal dead hand. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Brandon, I think it's a really good point to remember. Let us recall, let us not forget the strength that Frodo shows here in the barrow. Right. It was kind of a big deal. It was kind of a big deal what he did. 
right? What he was able to do. The victory that he won over the Barrow, calling out to Tom Bombadil was already a victory, right? Um, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't running away. That wasn't like just, you know, phoning a friend, right? That was winning, uh, to recall, because that we know that the Barrow White spell, the fog, you know, the fog, the Barrow White spell was actively preventing him from remembering Tom Bombadil, right? Um, but he remembers, so he overcomes, he wins, he defeats the spell of the Barrow. Remembers Tom Bombadil, remembers the verse, and sings it. And as soon as he names him, it's good, right? It's it's completely broken. Um, yeah. Um, yes, it will be intriguing to compare this sequence a long time from now when we get to the Witch King on uh, Pelennor Field, Aruron. Absolutely. Yeah. We should. We will definitely. We should definitely remember this scene when we get there. Um, we should also remember this scene when we get to the Balrog, right? Um, there are a number of places where battles of the kind that Frodo was fighting a battle, you know, a battle of the kind that's almost impossible to depict in a visual adaptation. Yeah, that kind of battle. Um, we'll see that on numerous occasions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Okay, um, so Dark Door is standing wide, dead hand is broken, and now the really tricky line. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open. Now, as one of you was asking about Dormouse, yeah, you're absolutely right to notice night and gate are capitalized. That's a big deal, right? That means something in particular. So night under night is flown. Now, the is flown gives us a hint, right? We know who he's talking about. Night under night is flown. It's the Barrow White that has flown, right? And what does flown mean? Careful. (laughs) This is a quiz. When Tom Bombadil says that it has flown, what does it mean? Paraphrase that. Yes, fled. It means it ran away. Uh, It did not sprout wings in flights. It's going to be important later. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, uh, night under night is flown. It's the Barrow White, obviously, that ran away. So he's, um, uh, yeah, ran away very fast. It would be my translation. Fled is a much better translation than the one that most of you gave. Um, And Mad Violinist, exactly. Especially once we once we have the the kind of the key to the first half of that line, by the, thanks to the verb, right? There's only one dude who's just flown away, right? And it's the grave dude that just flew away. So we know he's talking about the Barrow White there. So he characterizes the Barrow White as night under night, which of course also rhymes with white, which is also helpful. Um, so okay we should remember exactly as the mad violinist was just remembering um, darker than the darkness in Tom's song to the white, right? When he evicts the white Um, uh, out into the barren lands, far beyond the mountains, come never here again, leave your barrow empty, dark, lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness. Um, He's so he's called the white darker than the darkness. And now he's characterizing the white as night under night, is flown. 
Um, capital N Knight. What does that mean? One suspicion is that it means something kind of like Shadow with a capital S, right? Um, you could read Night Under Night, capital N, as a shadow under its great shadow, right? Um, a lesser spirit of evil that has been deputed by a greater evil spirit, right? Um that, I think, is one reading. I don't think it's the only possible reading. We could see the capital N night as, like, the endless night. Again, remember, we were talking about this in Tom's poem last week, thinking about um, the sort of potential connection between the, um, between the barrow white and the void itself, right? That it, it is darker than the darkness, because the void is just empty, right? Um, whereas it's it's an actual perversion of light. It's like Ungoliant's unlight rather than like a mere emptiness, right? Or a, a mere lack of light. Um, yeah, exactly. Fourth Thoughtless, we do see um, we do see night capitalized um, in that way. Keep an eye. There's a reason I keep coming back to. Ungoliant, uh, when I'm thinking about this with the Barrow White. Um, and it's Shelob's fault. So when we get to Shelob, keep this in mind, because this is totally going to be relevant again. Remember the Barrow White. Remember night under night is flown. Remember darker than the darkness when we get to Shelob's lair. It's totally going to come back and be important again. And the gate is open. What gate? What gate is open? This is obviously a particular gate, right? What gate is open? And what does it mean? Well, the hint, the hint to this, I think, um, even if we don't know our Silmarillion very well, is take that line back up from that line a second, right? I, f- I, I, I zeroed in immediately on the verb flown, right? Identifying that with the barrow white, which just fled, right? Um, and then thinking of night under night as so night under night is flown as meaning paraphrased the barrow white just ran away, right? And I, I do think that that half line does mean that, but hang on, take it, take a step back, right? Um, and look at the whole line. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open. When night runs away, what happens? Right? What do we call that when night runs away? Right? We call that dawn. Exactly, Pontine. We call that morning. Um, So in a larger, uh, in a sense, again, sort of symbolically, what he's saying, you know, he's connecting the flight of the Barrow White with the departure of night. And indeed, it's literally dawn, right? The sun is literally rising. Um, So the gate in question would be the gate of morning through which the sun comes, right? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And Matt, I do think it's interesting to think, Matt is suggesting that we could think of Darker Than the Darkness and Night Under Night as kinds of kennings for the Barrow White. Um, uh, alternate ways of naming a Barrow White and not summoning him back by calling his name, right? So you're speaking of him, but you don't want to, you don't want to speak his name and call him back, right? Because goodness, if Tom Bombadil calls somebody's name, it's going to come. Right. So is he speaking deliberately and directly of the Barrowite? Uh, remember, he addresses it in person. Right. Get out, you old white. He says to it. Right. Though even that fairly generic, but still he doesn't uh, he doesn't talk about it in the same way here. Maybe it does have that kind of sense uh, there, Matt. Um, but yes, Matthew Hershenrutter says day has come again. Absolutely. And that, I think, is another perfectly fair um, paraphrase of that, la- of, the, of that entire last line, right? Um, the night has passed. The day has come. That's what just happened here. Of course, it's literally what just happened. It's also on a couple different levels, metaphorically, spiritually, what just happened here, right? Um, I say on a couple different levels, two obviously, right? One, the evil influence of the Barrow White has now departed. Its spell has passed away. And so the, the, the passing away of the spell of the Barrow White is like the dispersal of the fog. It is like the passing of night and the sun rising and the day breaking in, right? In one, that's one sense in which that works metaphorically. The other sense is for the hobbits personally, right? They have been immersed in night, under night, right? Under the influence of the darkness. They have been experiencing a night of their own. They've been plunged into darkness, into this unnatural sleep, right? Wherever they have gone. But now the gate is open. They've been set free. Uh, So it's not just that the light has come in, which suggests that they're lying passive and the light is coming in on them. The gate is open and they can walk through. He's calling them to walk through the gate and emerge out into the light. Uh, and come so it's like the gates of morning are open, and Mary, Sam, and Pippin are supposed to walk through the figurative gates of morning, right? So it works in that in that sense too. And good, absolutely, Forthless. I was just going to, um, I was just going to remind us of that line in Tom's earlier um, banishment poem. His when he banishes the white, he refers to where gates stand forever shut right? The white is not going to be able to escape from the banishment, right? The hobbits are being invited to walk through the gate, but they have to do it. He's not going to come in after them, right? He's going to open the gates and he's going to command them to wake and then he's going to call to them. He's going to tell them to hear him. Notice he doesn't give them a command to come, right? To wake and to hear him calling is what he commanded them to and then reversing those subjunctive mood stuff. Right. May their hearts and limbs be warm. Uh, and the cold stone is... I forgot to say, the, the cold stone is fallen. Knows he shifts into the indicative. Right? Statement of fact. Statement of present, present indicative. Right? Commands, subjunctive, warm now be heart and limb, indicative. The cold stone is fallen. Dark door is standing wide. Dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown. And the gate is open. The entire rest of the poem, the whole last two and a half lines, statements of fact. Right, And this is the context, hobbits, in which you should respond to the imperative commands of Tom Bombadil. 
right? Wake and hear him calling. Warm now be heart and limb because of the following facts, right? That he then lays out for him. Um, yeah, absolutely, Irenaeus. You can absolutely read night under night is flown and the gate is open, thinking about night uh, as, 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 as death and the gate being the gateway back to life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's not exactly a resurrection, but it's kind of resurrection-ish. And here I come back to the, the, the point that Tony made, which I think is, um, is really uh, um, relevant there. Um, the, the fact that this looks like Easter Sunday morning, Right, um, with the rolling away of the stone, there's the word "rolling" is actually used, right? And then the morning sun streams in into, into the tomb, and then the you know the bodies come out and are animated again. It's it's it. There's, uh, yes, there's resurrection stuff in the air there. Um, so I rendis, I definitely think that that's relevant there. Um, good, awesome. Well, that was easy. If we get through this one, I think we're going to be accomplishing something. This is the one I've been looking forward to for weeks. And let me say, to start with, I think the most puzzling point of the entire thing. Um, Let me preface this by saying, to this point things seem to be relatively clear. I think the evidence that we've seen suggests that the Barrow White, as a specimen, is an evil spirit which has inhabited and animated the largely skeletal bodies of the dead. Right? So it's, it's, it is an animated corpse, but it is not the spirit of the animated corpse. So it's not like the dead dudes. It's not like the, an Oathbreaker situation. Right? Um, you're not dealing with this, so it's not like, for instance, um, Dracula, right? Like uh, somebody who makes some evil pact in his lifetime and then his unquiet spirit like remains, you know, through his pact with the devil and whatever. It's not like that, right? It's not like that at all. This is not the spirit of the ancient dead that they're interacting with. This is an immigrant spirit, right? This is a foreigner. This is a, somebody who came in here, and uh, there was a corpse minding its own business, right? This skeleton lying there, doing no harm to anybody, until until the what, this the evil spirit, the shadow spirit, came in and uh, was sort of forced into the corpse, just like the werewolf spirits are forced into the werewolves, and then we get a barrel white, right? That seems to be pretty clearly what's happening. And then we get this. Okay. To Frodo's great joy, the hobbits stirred, stretched their arms, rubbed their eyes, and then suddenly sprang up. They looked about in amazement, first at Frodo, and then at Tom, standing large as life on the barrow top above them, and then at themselves, in their white rags, crowned and belted with pale gold and jingling with trinkets. What in the name of wonder? began Mary, feeling the golden circlet that had slipped over one eye. Why am I wearing a crown? Right? Then he stopped, and a shadow came over his face, and he closed his eyes. Of course, I remember, he said. The men of Carndoom came on us at night, and we were worsted. Ah, the spear in my heart! He clutched his breast. No, no, he said, opening his eyes. What am I saying? I've been dreaming. 
Where did you get to, Frodo? I thought I was lost, said Frodo, but I don't want to speak of it. Let us think of what we are to do now. Let us go on. Okay. First of all, let us be perfectly clear about Mary's memory here. What is he remembering, exactly? Can you place the memory that he had? The key there is the men of Karndum came on us at night. Right? Where's Karndum? Who's Karndum? <laughs> You're right, Karita. The circlet f- drooping down over one eye is really is really cute. It's like Karita's comparing it to a precious moments figurine. <laughs> there's 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 a little bit of that air. I have to admit. Um, right, Karndum is in Angmar. Karndum is the capital of Angmar. It is the it is the Witch King's stronghold in Angmar. Therefore, the memory that Mary awakes with, right, the memory of being ambushed by the men of Car- ambushed and killed by the men of Carndoom, right? He took a spear in the heart. Um, is from the wars with Angmar. That means it is most likely a Dunedain memory that Mary wakes with. Now, this is interesting because, of course, the Dunedain did not make the barrows on the Barrow Downs. Um, They used them. They might have buried folks here, but they didn't make them, right? Um, So it, it kind of sets it in a particular epoch of history and not the earliest epoch of history. Okay. Um... So why does Mary wake up with this memory? Um, Has Mary been... Now, we know that we we know that there were Dunedain buried in that barrow. In that particular barrow. Right? Again, not only do we know for sure that the Dunedain used these barrows for burials, but we know that the Dunedain used that particular barrow for burial. Why? Because of the swords, right? There are Dunedain swords, Dunedain swords in the barrow. Um, so, yes, clearly the Dunedain used this barrow specifically. Um, and Mary, who was asleep, you know, cast into this sleep in that tomb, awakes with the memory that sounds like it could well be the memory of someone who was buried in that tomb. There's, I see no reason to doubt that. How did that happen? What does that mean? Now, this passage has led many to suspect that... Remember when I just said the Barrow Whites were not like a... Uh, we're not like a, a an oathbreaker situation, right? Um, 
that they were um, these. So it's not the spirits of the of the act. The spirits that belonged to those bodies, right? The spirits that are inhabiting the bodies and animating the corpses in the Barrow Downs are alien corpses or alien spirits to those corpses, right? Those the spirits that belonged in those bodies when those bodies were alive have already gone, long since gone, wherever it is that men's spirits go, right? But many have read this passage as suggesting the opposite, right? So that okay, maybe that Barrow White was the unquiet spirit of the, the the Dunedain dude, right? Whose memory Mary wakes up with. Maybe that's part of the spell. Because, of course, here's the argument in favor of that reading, right? The argument that I would make goes something like this. Um, remember, in its incantation, what the white seems to be doing is trying to make them like it, like he is binding them to himself, right? He is going to lift his hand over them. He's going to, but it's more than just killing them. This is not just like, I'm going to, you know, stab you and kill you. Um, he, again, if that was the goal, could have done, done that long since, right? There's clearly more to it than that. Um, uh, something like a kind of integration, a kind of subjugation. So if therefore the Barrow White itself were the risen and tormented spirit of the Dunedain guy who died in the ambush by the men of Karn Doom, then that experience of being uh, sort of cursed and taken into the experience of the White, so that's how Mary got that memory, right? Because of the connection between him and the Barrow White, who was that guy and so had that memory. That would be the argument um, that would be an argument for that position. Um, at least if I were tasked to make an argument for that position, that's the way that I would do that. I disbelieve that reading. I don't think that that's correct. Um, and the main reason I don't think that that's correct is that there is absolutely nothing in Tom's words that suggests that he is setting free a tormented human spirit that has been enslaved against its will. Tom would have mentioned that, right? I mean, if this were some poor Cardolan prince who, you know, like, died fighting the men of Angmar, but who has been tormented after death by having his spirit chained to his desiccated corpse and going around waylaying poor innocent hobbits and laying curses upon them, I mean, come on. Tom Bombadil would have said something about, you know, like, hey, dude, like, be free, Right? And we know that the spirits of the dead that are constrained to go about and continue living in this world, you know, against their will, want to be free. Right? When we meet the Oathbreakers later on, we learn that, right? So I think it's it's very clear that the Barrow White is not the spirit of the Cardolan Prince. It is not, it's, a, it, it's again, alien spirit. It may well be the body. It may possibly be the body of that Cardolan spirit. And this, of course, is even in a sense leading me to wonder if that could be another, or perhaps just an elaboration of the same reading that many of you were giving um, of the, the cave-in, right, in the barrow, um, that it could be something like, you know, a hint towards a proper burial, uh, finally. Uh, it, there's no, Tom means, Tom intends no disrespect 
to the actual bones, to the actual corpse, right? Um, you know, the corpse has been hijacked by that evil spirit. He banishes the evil spirit. He doesn't liberate the spirit that's in the body. He banishes it. He kicks it out, right? Um, and then seems to... Um, and then seems to uh, uh, perhaps, you know, uh, sort of gesture towards burying the body. So... I, again, I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. I do not believe. Again, it, it would have to come up. And Tom would talk about it differently if he were setting free a unenslaved and tormented spirit of a presumably good, at least person who died on the on, on the right side, not breaking his oath but doing what was right. I mean, fighting against the enemy of you know a Dunedain uh, dude who died fighting against the enemies of the Dunedain doesn't seem much to object to there, right? Okay. So, then, where does Mary's memory come from? Why does he identify? Why did he have a dream in which he saw, from a first-person perspective, the memory of the soul of a dude buried in the... I'm perfectly willing to believe that that's the case, that what Mary saw was true, was a true vision of what actually happened from the point of view of the person who was lying in that tomb, or one of the people lying in that tomb. I'm totally willing to believe that that was the case, right? Um, There are a couple possibilities here. One, Matt, that is an interesting idea, that the treasure itself carries the memories, sort of the haunting of the barrow. Um... Uh, Matt's suggesting that's why the treasure needs to be scattered. I think that that's possible. I think that that's possible, that it could be part of the spell of the Barrowite, this sort of holding on to things. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm... Here's why I'm not sure. One of the things... One of the things that I am guided by in my reading of this passage is what is the effect of it? Right? You know, so I mean like it's not a it's not a a, a fail safe you know, rule of thumb but it's pretty good if you want to know who's sending a vision you know, is it good guy sending a vision, or is it bad guy sending a vision, right? One question to ask is, what is the effect of the vision, right? What impact does the vision have on the one who receives it? We know what the influence of the... We know what the Barrow White was going for. We know what its influence on people was, right? What is Mary's reaction? Did he experience the kind of horror and fear that was threatening to paralyze Frodo? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I remember, he says, the men of Karn Doom came on us at night and we were worsted. Ah, the spear in my heart. He remembers the death. He remembers what happened. But isn't that... Is that a bad thing? Is his experience... Is he overcome with fear? 
I don't see it. I don't see it. Um, is it possible? Or rather, let me say more positively, it seems possible to me that this identification could have a positive impact on Mary. May indeed have a positive impact on Mary. Um, Ethelot is saying, could this experience motivate him to kill the Witch King? Um, I mean, I don't know that it's exactly motivation, but the narrator will tell us when Mary stabs the Witch King in the back of his mighty knee with this sword that he removes from this barrow, that, or that Tom removes from the barrow, technically, uh, that he who made it long ago would have been pretty pleased to know its, to know its fate, right? He, he would have been, uh, he would have been stoked to find out that the knife that he had forged had helped to bring about the destruction of the Witch King of Angmar. That would have totally been a win, right? Um, it's interesting to me, therefore. Now, again, that's what the narrator will tell us at that time. He'll be remembering the person who made it, the person who forged it thousands of years before. But I can't help but think of our friend, the Prince of Cardolan, or whoever it was, right? Our, uh, Card- uh, adjective form, Cardolanian? Our Cardolanian, um, dude, right? whose eyes, through whose eyes Mary saw during this vision, right? Is, uh, Cardolingian. <laughs> I like that. It's wrong, uh, in so many ways, but that's hilarious, Tarlonio. Cardolingian. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that Tarlonial, just because it's hilarious. Uh, that's uh, that's that's way too good. Uh, Cardolander is is also pretty good, uh, JJ. But Cardolingian, that one obviously wins. Anyway, okay, okay. Um, uh, yes, okay. Um, I'm saying the narrator is referring back to the guy who forged the knife. But you know who else would be pleased? Like the dude whose memories Mary briefly shares, right? Um, that all that person, you know, like it, uh, I, I kind of like the idea that here's Mary on the, the, on Pelinor Field being all like, this is for me and my Cardolingian friend, right? Um, this is in that like Mary avenges the death of the guy whose memory he briefly shares. Uh, I, you know, that doesn't seem bad to me. Even just the fact that Mary will now retain, though he seems fairly quick to brush it off, but he has been given anyway, he's been shown, he's been given this sympathy this memory of the, I mean, who remembers, what, what of the, what, which of the hobbits remember the people of Cardolan, right? I mean, nobody remembers the people of Cardolan, right? Even the Dunedain, I mean, like, they're the people of Arthodain. I mean, like, you know, Aragorn remembers that the people of Cardolan exist, but, I mean, nobody cares about the people of Cardolan and the, and the deaths that they died fighting against Angmar, right? But Mary now knows, 
right? And Mary, of course, is going to go on to avenge them awesomely, right? So, again, I don't... Do I think... This is why I can't be comfortable with the conclusion that this memory that Mary has has been, like, afflicted, you know, inflicted on him by the Barrow White. It just... It doesn't feel that way. So what else could it be? Right? Um... Oh, J.J., that is interesting. You're right, of course, that Buckland is closer to Old Cardolan uh, than uh, than the rest of the Shire as well. It's over on the, the Cardolingian side of the river. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Okay. So then, if it's not inflicted on him by the Barrow White, where does it come from? How does he get it? If it's not... If that passage is not the key to the actual identity of the Barrow White, as I don't think it is, then where does it come from? And I think the key word that gives it away is dreaming. I've been dreaming, he says. We have precedent for that. We know all about dreaming, right? We've talked about lots of dreams. Um, remember, Frodo, when he was in the house of Tom Bombadil, what was he having? A current events dream, right? Um, well, okay, it was a recent events dream, in fact. It wasn't literally current events, right? But it was a recent events dream. Mary has a much less recent events dream. But it's still similar in the sense that he is seeing something that is relevant. I mean, I guess it's current events from the point of view of the inside of that barrow, right? Um, Maybe perhaps you could call it local events dream, right? Um, Yeah, and Lincoln, you're right. The the hooves galloping from the south, you mean east. Uh, Yes, that's a that is a current events dream. There are indeed galloping hooves, who which soever direction they are coming from, and whosoever horse they belong to. There are plenty of galloping hooves around that Frodo is is actually is actually hearing. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do think that um, uh, I do think that they. Um, it seems totally appropriate that in his sleep. Right in 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 the sleep into which he has been cast, he Mary would um, dream a a cartilagin dream, right? That seems to me absolutely understandable. You could even see the um, you could even sort of take it one step further. It's not that he's being identified with the Barrow White that leads him to have the dream. It's that he's being identified with the Barrow White's victim. Right here, he is in the tomb of the victim of the barrow. What the what he's about to get stabbed in the heart, or maybe slashed across the throat, or whatever. Anyway, he's about to get killed, right, by an Angmaran spirit as well. Somebody was just saying that Tim Dolph was just saying that exactly, Tim. Um, again, fe- fellow feeling with the Cardolan prince, right? Mary and the Cardolan, they're right there, right? They're in a similar predicament. A predicament which is going to have uh, 
equally fatal results for the both of them, right? Without the intervention of Frodo and Tom Bombadil. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, that's I, I. I think that it's not the Barrow White's power that brings that dream to Mary. I think it's another power that brings it to him. Now you're going to ask me what power? I have no idea what power it is. Is there some power in the barrow? Is there something in the? Um, is there something in the the? You know the might of old Cardolan that still. You know, like something in the spirit of 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 the of of Cardolan that still seeks to resist Angmar that somehow Mary kind of taps into. Is he seeing the memory of like the stones and the local spirits, the non-Barrowite spirits? That is just those that live in the hills, um, that remember affectionately the Cardolingians who died there. Possibly, maybe that's it. Maybe it's. Um, uh, Lincoln says you'd think Olmo, but he doesn't have any water nearby to work with. I don't think he does. Uh, I mean, we weren't told about any streams nearby, but, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe Olmo couldn't have done without those. Um, Matt asks, would it be safer to call these visions rather than dreams? Yeah, Sure. I'd go with that. I mean, I but dreaming, of course, is the, I, I you know I, I emphasize that because that's the word that Mary used, and of course we've seen dreams before. But um, do I think it's safe to call these ve- these dreams visions? Yes, but this gets us into a into the complex world of dream classification, which was a cottage industry in the Middle Ages. Um, they had six different categories of dreams uh, that they um, uh, distinguished. Uh, very, uh, very, very rigidly. Um, you can read all about this, by the way, in the commentary on the dream of Scipio, which, uh, although it sounds really obscure, uh, Macrobius's commentary on the dream of Scipio is one of the like ten best-selling works of the entire Middle Ages. Um, that was a, that that sucker's a page turner. They loved the commentary on the dream of Scipio by Macrobius, and you, you can read all about the different kinds of dreaming there. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so again, can't explain all the mysteries of Mary's vision, but on the whole, looking at it from the big picture, I don't, I can't think that this was a vision that comes from the Barrow White, um, uh, uh, which Scipio, Scipio the Younger, I think, uh, the references to the end of, uh, Cicero's Republic, uh, when Scipio, upon his death, ascends up into the third heaven and looks down upon the world and uh, has a conversation about the world and how it works. And so it's the commentary on that part of Cicero's treatise that Macrobius was... Anyway, it's like one of those super geeky medieval things. Like not... I mean, yes, it's modern geeks who read it, but I mean like the medievals reading it were geeks. Um uh, part of like medieval geek culture basically was the love of uh of uh uh macrobius but anyway um yeah cool all right um and there i am going to stop because this is a good place to stop um well let me just finish the slide briefly 
um, Frodo doesn't want to speak of what he went through in the Barrow, which is interesting. On the one hand, this is a this is a gesture of humility on his part, right? It's kind of good. I mean, it speaks well of Frodo that he doesn't say, you know, when he says, you know, where did you get to, Frodo? That Frodo's response isn't where I got to was saving your butts. Did you? I let me tell you about. How I took that sword and I broke off the hand. It was about to cut your throat, but I totally stopped it. Right? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, um, I, I. He doesn't do that. I'm glad he doesn't do that. I think I think it's a good sign that he doesn't do that. Um, especially in light of his recent ring temptation, the fact that he takes the non-self-aggrandizing route is a good one. But I think there's more to it than that. This is not just humility. There is humility involved here, but it's not just humility, right? He doesn't want to speak of it because it's too horrible. Right? He doesn't want to remember what happened back there. Um, he survived the spell of the Barrow Whites. He broke the, sp- the spell of the Barrow Whites. That was a win for Frodo, but he didn't enjoy it, and he doesn't want to relive it, right? Um, uh, so that's... Uh, and yeah, you're right, of course, Fourth Thomas, I do see that Mary is asking about why Frodo disappeared before they were captured, right? Um, yeah, but again, I think that that's, that's clearly an opening for Frodo to t- give his account of what happened, and he doesn't want to talk about what happened. Um, he says, I thought I was lost, which is interesting. He doesn't say... I- I, I got lost. I thought I was lost. He's discovered that he wasn't lost, right? Now that the sun has risen, he's no longer lost, right? And he realizes he's not been lost. But he thought he was lost. For a while, he thought he was lost. But now he's found himself again, and he'd rather not go back to the lost place. Um, and Darren, I agree, there may also be some shame for him from the ring temptation that he wouldn't want to talk about. But it's it's not even just that he only skips that bit. He doesn't just give a selective retelling like Bilbo did, right? With the selective retelling where you leave out the bits related to the ring. Precedent for that kind of thing, right? But he he doesn't even do that. He doesn't want to talk about it at all, right? Um, an absolutely mad violinist, I agree, that Lost is bigger than disoriented here. Another one of those words of which we see so many in this whole passage, right? Which means one thing and another larger thing at the same time, right? Clearly. Um, similarly, Mad Violinist, I would say, I would lay a similar weight upon what he says at the end. Let us go on, right? He means, let's get to the road before we lose the daylight again, right? Um, because, of course, they don't yet know that Tom Bombadil's going to come with him. Um, but I, But just as I thought that I was lost means I literally was disoriented and lost my way and also means I thought we were never getting out of there. I thought we were all dead. Um, or worse, right? Uh, so too, let us go on means let's see if we can make the road before sundown today, fellas. And also means let's turn our backs on this and move Let's not look back at this. Let's not dwell on this. Let's move forward, right? Let's move forward in the sunlight. Um, but though you certainly are correct, Matt, that Frodo never wants to talk about the temptations of the ring. He never has. He doesn't tell Gildor about it. No, he doesn't tell Gildor about it. No, no, no. He never has mentioned it to anybody. Okay, cool. All right.
with that, I'm going to stop. We got through three slides tonight. We are so close to the end of this chapter and our arrival in Brie. Okay, we're still like four pages away, uh, but that's okay. Um, Exactly. Lincoln says, okay, guys, just so we're clear, last night never happened. Got it? And kind of like that. A little, a little bit more constructive than that. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, call an end uh, to our textual discussion here. Uh, uh, tonight, uh, we're going to go on our field trip. Um, I think we ended the text at a really great place uh, to, um, uh, uh, to be segueing because tonight we're going to be looking at the Barrow Downs uh, in uh, in the Lotro game world and and the the way that the, uh, the to me by far the most interesting part um, of the Barrow Downs adaptation within the game um, that the Standing Stone folks have done um, because they they uh, they incorporate the Cardolingian presence there in the Barrow Downs um, which I think is really fun so we're gonna. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna head over there. Thanks. So for, I'm gonna say goodbye to folks on uh, on Twitter. Uh, thanks very much for joining me, you guys. All right, there we go. And excellent. So I'm gonna I'm gonna switch over to the game here. Okay. Okay, Valori, you are you are here in uh, yep. in your in your your Christmas bear costume, right? Yeah, kind of kind of uh, coincidence there. This is our last one before Christmas. Yeah. Um, I, I'm saying it because uh, it, you it, you might not be able to see it on the stream. Her character's name is Gold Yule, uh, which means <laughs> Merry Christmas uh, in various Scandinavian languages. <laughs> Uh, I just had my uh, uh, my my greater extended, largely uh, Norwegian family. Um, just had our, Isn't our, our like Olsen? exactly yeah exactly. Uh, uh, we just had our uh, we just had our gathering uh, where we sang Christmas songs and stuff together for like an hour and a half and uh, sang several carols in Norwegian. So we just we just did some gold Yule cool. stuff uh, explaining to the children. Uh, we don't actually go that far, but we do, you know, (laughs) sing Norwegian songs and dance around the tree. It's very fun. Um, anyway. All right. So, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna head out. So uh, again, I'm just planning to ride out those of you. If uh, anyone is coming in, we're on Arkenstone tonight. Anybody coming in from outside, we'll wait for you briefly at the uh, crossroads again, and then we'll head, we'll just head on horseback down. So I think we can just, we don't have no. Uh, the Barrow Downs are convenient to get to from Bree, so we can just head straight mm-hmm. there. Ah, Ethelwad has asked me what is my favorite in-game name. Um, my favorite, my favorite name. For a P, a, uh, a player character in the game, uh, is one of the um, one of our Mythgard kin folks um, and Signum student actually, uh, Signum student and staff 
person uh, who has named her character Symbol Muniel. That is my favorite in-game name. Uh, I believe she also, uh, in a feat of overachievement, has another character whose name is uh, Oyolosiel, um, which is which is really going above and beyond the Call of Duty. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Symbol Muniel is definitely my is definitely my favorite character name. Well, uh, you know Rachel, my uh, tangent artist cohort, who's uh, yes. usually with Mythgard. As other, um, I, I love that uh, on all the servers she has a Hobbit character who has uh, some various spelling of Perry of the Winkle. Perry of the Winkle, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm that's like, good. how did you manage this child? <laughs> yeah, that's no good. No one else thought it. This is recently too. She only did it like last year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's really you know there's really very there are very very few like you can pretty much come up with a Tolkien name as obscure as you please, you know, um, uh-huh. and, and, and it won't be available. <laughs> you know I mean? It's oh, true. Yeah. I, I, I found that was even true. Um, I don't know if you've ever played uh, DDO Dungeons and Dragons online. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've played it a little bit. Just, I was interested. I, you know, I've been a big D and D f- fan most of my life. So, uh, and of course, you know, not to mention, of course, a big supporter of, uh, of Standing Stone. So, um, you know, I've created a character and, and, uh, just kind of experimented with the game. I've never played that much. Um, but there, you know, so fun. I was, I was, I was playing a, a, a wizard. I was making an elf wizard and I'm like, okay, all right. Now, like in Lotro, fine. Like I get the fact that in Lotro, especially after ten years, you know, you can't come up with any character, howsoever obscure, uh, that hasn't been thought of before. But dang it, it's true in DDO also. I'm like, I was trying oh, to like no. every single like Book of Lost Tales character, that, like obscure uh, <laughs> Book of Lost Tales character, they're all taken already. You know, I'm like, man, yeah, you really gotta chop them up and sew them back together. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Even then. Even then, it's hardly likely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, cool. All right. Let's uh, let's head out. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go in through the north side again, so we'll just gallop straight across the North Barrow Downs. Now, keep in mind, we have some um, low-level folks here with us tonight, so... Like me! Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. what, level 19? 19. Well, that's not too bad for the Northern Barrow Down. It's only a few levels below. Only a few. It's but I will attract quite a lot of nonsense. Yes, that's, it, that is true. That is true. Um, yeah. And, yeah, uh, you know, you're, Amathorn, you're right. You know, when you when you're trying to start a new Locho character and you just spend hours and hours coming up with the perfect name and every single thing you come up with is already taken it is completely demoralizing I have so been there yeah yeah no the, the new high elves coming out I'm, you know there's uh, Rachel and I rolled one we were trying to get some twitch videos up and yeah we were just the, the staring at the screen and go how about and then no, no <laughs> it's taken again yeah 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 everything's taken Reminds me of rather when uh, email addresses started becoming a thing. Right, right. 
so I wound up with something really long and complicated, and I kind of wish I hadn't sort of, that was my rage quit, to come up with some, something so complicated no one would have it. Right. <laughs> I have many regrets. Yeah, but it's really hard. I find it, I find it very difficult to, I mean, it's just, it's just me. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a language snob in general, but I have a really hard time <laughs> doing the thing, you know, that, that a lot of people do. And I mean, it's, a, it's a completely, you know, legitimate way around this problem, right. Is to, you know, as you were suggesting, kind of come up with some kind of weird spelled variant, um, to kind of get close to the name, even if you can't, you know, even if that name is taken and you can't do it. Um, but I, I just I have a really tough time with that. I, I I have a hard time looking at a name which I know to be like very aggressively misspelled. <laughs> you know, it's like if I'm wanting to give him a Cinderin name and the name I give him looks nothing like Cinderin, well, it's not a Cinderin name anymore, is it? I might as well just come up with a different one rather than forcing it. I I, can, I have a really hard time with that. So yeah yeah I could see that <laughs> okay let's see let's I'm gonna let's stop and make sure the whole family's here together now watch yeah, out for kill some things, probably. Yeah. oh he's doing yep yeah, here we go there oh we go. no man things are yellow out here this isn't a few levels yeah let's see uh, ooh beak rend huh yeah let's have him do that sorry I'm getting my uh Let's see, where's the thing where I put him on? Let's see, which mode? Aggressive mode, that's what I want. Okay, all right. Just set my pet on aggressive mode there, so. Oh, good. Uh, that should help, I think. Wait, which one is this one? This one is... As long as you're not mounted, as soon as you're mounted, it disappears. All right, yeah, exactly. No, we'll go on foot from here. Okay. Okay, cool. Because this is about as far as we made it down into the Barrow Downs last time. All right, that's good. That's helpful. Um, all right. So as we proceed south here, we are still... As you can see on the map easily, uh, it's like, which of these things is not like the other, right? You can really tell which uh, piece of construction looks different from the rest of them. Here we're still in large standing stones that may be natural... And then other large standing stones, which are obviously not natural. Yeah. I was about Somebody to say, oh, hey, look, it's another marked stone. I'm like, oh, no, it's a rich iron deposit. Never mind. <laughs> right. Okay. And here's a caved in barrow. Looks like this one has had the barrow white kicked out of it in the past. We can see the same yeah. markings around uh, around this one. See, I have okay. a theory about the, the part of the barrow that was uh, smashed in. Was caved in, yeah. And uh, in my head, um, when I, just as I was reading it, it sounded more like the, the white was sort of going back to his, to the section where his body would have been laid, the burial part of the chamber, not the part where he puts out all the stuff for everybody to look at. Okay. So he was like reburying so, himself, is, is, um, is the theory? Yeah, it's like he was retreating to his... his, his um, basically his source the source of his uh i don't know power but definitely the source of you know where he was housed you know yeah. like there was some sort of protection and you know they'd have spells all over it to protect the body in the first place right right and so the the spirit inhabiting you know the corpse is you know 
recognized that and retreated to the one place a corpse, you know, is protected. Right. Well, that's the, that idea, of course. The, I mean, that's very Dracula, right? You know, like the the um, going back to his of, earth but box. It's also, yeah, but it's also just, you know, old, 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 old folklore. Kind of oh, yeah. Right. right. Sort of where where Dracula gets it. Uh, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, right. I mean, I could see that. I could see that. Um, okay, uh, and, to, and to quote Dracula, remember Lucy was sort of a rev, you know, inhabited. She wasn't exactly herself, so she, right. she was doing the same thing. Right, fleeing Just, back into the to her to the to the mm-hmm. tomb. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we can a couple points of interest here. First, um. This is obviously we we can see clearly this is a Dunedain construction, right? Oh yeah. Look at our stars all over the place. But look at our stars. Those eight pointed. Those are. So that's six. Six pointed. Yeah, stars. six pointed. No wait, it's seven. It's seven. Three, four, five, six. Oh, it is seven. Ugh. But 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 look but but what's What's different? Um, it's upside down. Yes, exactly. Ah. The and you can see this most clearly in Enuminous, um, uh, right? Especially if you think of that um, that ship icon that we get in a bunch of places uh, in Enuminous, uh-huh. where you have like the curved bottom of the ship and then the sails, which and then the star up at the top, so then the the beam, the central beam shining down from the star forms like the mast of the ship and the sails look like, you know, so like the radiance, spotlight radiance of the of the star, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the Numenor, the, Numen- the Numenorian symbol is not just a seven-pointed star, but it's a seven-pointed star with the sort of central point pointing down. And that's important because, of course, it commemorates Numenor itself. The seven-point, the, the star with the, with the, the, that main beam pointing downwards is the central symbol of Numenor because it's called Elena, the land of the star, uh, because it was the star of, of, uh, Arendil, which guided them, the Dunedain, uh, across the sea, uh, to, to, to Numenor. So you've got like the light of the star shining down on the island of Numenor, symbolizing both the guidance of the Valar to Numenor and also sort of the blessing of the Valar upon and of the Somero and of, you know, Eärendil, uh, who is their, you know, forefather shining down on the land of Numenor. So it's really interesting that the Cardolan stars are pointed up and not down. Um, and I am not 100% sure what to make of that. Um, it makes me wonder if the... if this is... Uh, if this is absolutely unique to Cardolan, or if we do see it elsewhere, do we see it in the Rudaran uh, ruins? I'm not remembering now. Uh, we'll, I think we would have noticed we'll that have to go back Rudaran, and, but... We'll have to go back and check. Um, yeah, but, uh, um, but it's definitely, you can definitely see in the earliest, like the pre Dunedinian civil war, um, uh, architecture, the, the light shining down from the star is very prominent. Um, 
the fact that any of the post Civil War Dunedain kingdoms would have the seven point would retain the star but would no longer have it shining down uh, seems to me uh, an ominous kind of innovation, right? Uh, yeah, usually people turn upside down symbols upside down to indicate that they're uh, perverted or reversed or um, or at know, the just... or, or even like. Even if it's not actively malignant in that way, it's at least sort of disquieting, right? Like, as if they've forgotten what the symbol meant, right? Um, or they think they can interpret it better. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I, I, I think it's really interesting that uh, the star is upside down here on the, on, on the, the Cardolan ruins or the Cardolingian ruins. Um, we do see the two other... <laughs> Two other symbols, which are interesting in different ways. One, this sort of pitchfork symbol, um, is uh, that I believe is the scepter of Anuminus symbol, um, and that's because we we see that all over the place. We see that in, it's fairly consistent. We see it in Anuminus sometimes in more detail. This looks a little bit more simple pitchforky. Sometimes it's a little bit more. Sometimes it's larger and more elaborate than that. Um, but I'm pretty sure that that means. Uh, that that means uh, the scepter of Anuminus, because remember, it's the scepter, not the crown, that is the symbol of of royalty, of authority in Arnor. Um, only in Gondor did they use the crown as the as the symbol of power. Um, it was the scepter, like the scepter um, uh, of Numenor. Uh, the king of Numenor had a scepter, not a crown. Um, so the scepter of Anuminus, of course, is not the scepter of the king of Numenor, because, of course, all the stuff of the king of Numenor is still with the king of Numenor, uh, buried under the earth where, he, you know, when he attacked Valinor. Um, now, the other symbol is of particular interest. The other uh, inscription that we can see here is this vine thing. Um, and this interests me particularly because... That is the same vine thing that we have been noticing on the artichoke gazebos. Um, and I still don't know what quite to make of them. They have... I think these are leaves, not thorns. I think they're leaves. They could be thorns, but I think they're leaves. Um, and there are... What? One, two, three... That's a branch. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Are there nine leaves? I think there are nine leaves and two little branches on this. I'm just trying to figure how this, because I mean, most symbols like that are kind of meant to be interpreted, you know, iconographically like that. Yeah. Uh, so it's I still don't. Yeah, I mean, we get them. They're fairly com. They're fairly common. Um, it's clearly not just a Cardoan symbol. We've seen it in Rudaran territory. We've seen it elsewhere. I mean, Grifflet just came across an artichoke gazebo that had those same things with the same statue down in the Dunbog in South Dunland. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is all these stars around the. Um the uh, oh, what you call them? The tops the ca- of the columns. The capitals, yeah. 
Oh, the Capitol. Sorry. Yeah, These yeah. are much more intricate with the stars than I've seen before. Yes. Yeah. And of course they have the seven stars, right? So you have the seven, seven pointed stars. So you've got, you got, you know, so that's all, that's all good. But look, as you say, it's uh, upside down. Yeah. They did some work doing that. Usually I think they just, you know, it's, it's so easy to just take a design and drop it somewhere else, but they really just do pay attention to, to all these little things on this area and that area. Right. Um, Pontine asks a really interesting question. Could the the uh, the vine? Could it be a branch? Could it be um, the branch? What was Pontine say? Could, could it be a fruit or vine from the white tree of Numenor? Um, that's an interesting question. Commemorating Isildur's stealing of the fruit from the white tree before its destruction, possibly. Yeah, well, it- it looks like uh, it looks like a sprig of rosemary, actually. Yeah, it does. I agree. Those kind of do look like rosemary um, needles. I guess needles would be the word to describe it. Um, I'm not sure. I own a bush. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do have the seven stars. Fourth Dauntless, I don't think there's any suggestion of the seven stones. We do, there are statues that you can see around here that will sometimes have somebody holding a stone, which I take to be a Palantir. Um, but I don't know, you don't normally see them represented. Interesting that they built this thing in a, in a really defensive spot, right? So they've you know, it'd be really easy to stave off attack from here, and they've built it up on this wall and stuff, and then they don't even build a wall. They just make a colonnade up at the top. That seems short-sighted. Or overconfident, one or the other. Oh, it's another thing that they weren't meant to, they weren't going to even try to defend it like it was right. meant for that. And here's a tomb. This could be, an, could be another, or another leisure palace. Right. See, look this at... This is a tomb. This is a tomb. Again with the upwards pointing star. Yeah. And the topmost point. It could just be the angle. But doesn't it look darker? Different? Not so much on the uh, end, but on the side. Couldn't say. Oh, we're, the oh, we're getting shadow there. Sorry, no, <laughs> yeah. Get out of the way, Signal Mew. Um <laughs> Yeah, over here. Yeah. It's hard to tell if maybe it's just the... What about his crown, though? Is that... The king? Yeah. Oh, look, he's got the vines all around him. Oh, yeah. Look at that, he's got six of those same vine things. That's gotta be something. Why would they do that? Ward off sickness and disease? Maybe he died of something they didn't want to, didn't want it to be catching or something. Could it be Athelos? Um, have we seen Athelos in game? Not since the intro area, when we collected it to help Amdir. Yeah, but those had big old leaves. Yeah, and certainly when you purchase bits of it as a scholar to make potions out of, 
Uh-huh. It looks. Uh, Almost looks like a dock leaf. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some sort of holy herb or something like that. Which is exactly what brought me to Athos in the first place as uh, being the primary example and, of course, famous in this area. Um, I'm trying to figure out the king here. So he's wearing a crown. Uh Hey, bog lurker, down in front. Um... Uh, Does not have a sword. Yeah, thank you, Bogdurker. Uh No, he's got his hands on his chest, not folded on his chest. If he had a sword like the handle of the, you know, if he had the, the hilt of his sword between those two hands and then the sword uh-huh. extending down his body, I wouldn't think a thing of it. But he doesn't have a sword, but his hands are positioned as if he's holding one. It was stolen. Well, but it, would it have been a real sword? Maybe it was. Maybe he was holding a real Maybe sword, and the sword was still. Maybe he was holding a real sword, and somebody helped themselves. Yeah, that I could believe. Hey, Signum, you get off the tomb. Um, <laughs> he's got fetching little boots. I know. Seriously, get moving. Um, I love how this tomb has feet like a footed tub. Uh, yeah. And then, it's like it's like teeth. It's terrible. Yeah, it's really kind of weird. A, they're not happy feet. No, no. Um, tentacles. Yeah, they do look like tentacles or or like tongues or something creepy. Yeah. Um, the shields on the end with the five stars. Why five? They're seven pointed still. I mean, they're still Dunedinian stars. Um, but. Oh, wait. Ethelard, you're seeing something on the ground? What are you seeing on the ground? There's something on the ground? I mean, there's the star pattern underneath us here. Yeah. I, I don't see anything. Is there something lying around? Oh, there's a star under underneath where the coffin is. There's a giant star. Okay, there's another one right under? Okay. Yeah, there's another one right under. Almost like, they, almost like the coffin's out of place, and this was just like right. a little dais here. Right. Right, and then we've it got... does make you wonder why there's only five stars. Maybe the two on the either side were supposed to make up the difference. Huh. Yeah. Right, so that it's seven total around this. Well, no, because it's 12 total. Yeah. So there are five on each side. Yeah. So if we're counting, then it's... it's... As a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, but anyway, the fact that he has a crown is interesting. I... I mean, obviously, this is a Dunedain lord. Um, and there are enough stars around there to, yeah, uh, to make that clear. Um, and this would be this would have been a king of a king of Cardolan. Um, but so, why would he be wearing a crown? Well, again, this is after the Civil Wars. I mean, it's interesting that they that, because I I suspect. Remember also that a crown features. Um, at least sort of symbolically, even in the um, the very icon, the very symbol of Rudaur itself, right? That forest, the forest trees, which look like a crown, indeed look like the iron crown. Um, uh-huh. uh, so um, it does seem that the crown does gain some traction as the symbol of royalty among the separate 
like the splintered Dunedinian houses. Um, the impression that it gives me uh, is that um, the impression that it gives me is that the scepter was the sign of royalty in old Arnor. And then after the Civil Wars begin, the kings of the different realms, Arthedain and Cardolan and Rudaur, wear crowns, or at least in Cardolan and Rudaur, because they don't have the scepter. And the scepter remains the symbol of, like, the overlordship of, of all of Arnor, which is why Rudaur and Cardolan continue to carve it into their buildings, because they're claiming they don't have the physical scepter, but they're still claiming the overlordship. So that the king would mean he was the king of Cardolan, um, but the scepter would mean he's ruling all of Arnor, which he's not, though he wishes he were. Do you think the empty hands might have symbolized the fact that he didn't have the scepter? Oh, that'd be like, insert scepter here. Yeah, you know. we saw, we we (laughs) did see another one like that in the North Downs, where they didn't have, it was sort of, uh, not quite a scepter, but, you know, soon, soon. Right. (laughs) Empty-handed, right? Yeah. Okay. That, that's, that, uh, right, to show the promise of, Scepterage later. Yes, future scepters. I think it's this same dude, right? Or a replica. Yeah, same dude there. And over there. Right, and there's the five stars again. People were talking about places where you can see the that grouping of specifically of five stars. Um, Um, I don't know what to make of it. Um, I can't think why the five stars would be significant, say, to Cardolan in particular. Um, I mean, the capitals around the, you know, on top of the columns up here have the seven stars. Yeah. But then, of course, the capitals on the pilasters there have five. Can't explain it. It's more vines than the scepter again. Yeah, exactly. Vines are... But see, now I'm looking at those vines differently. Now that I've seen them going around the border of the tomb in that way, uh-huh. now I can't help but feel like, notice it's going all around this building, like it's a like a warding or protecting or... or at least indicating what type of building this is. Yeah. Yeah, but again, I'm thinking of, you know, like the observation you made about the the, you know, those vine or branch, vines or branches or whatever they are um, looking like there's, you know, some as if they were some kind of warding around the edge of the tomb. Um, mm-hmm. And I agree, it does look like that. It could be merely a decorative border. Yeah, it's, it's like why would you add a fun, uh, uh, why would you add a feature to make it look like the area is neglected and overgrown? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Um, ah, that over there must be like the inner keep. So if yeah, they take, that, if they oh, take that the, looks like that looks like. Like Esteldine, like, like right? Esteldine, yeah, it does look like Esteldine. Yeah. Except it's got stars on it, which Esteldine didn't have. Well, Esteldine was definitely a function and not form. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's got stars and vines and scepters all over the place. 
Cecil Dean, if they had had time to pretty it up. Exactly. I think it's because, you know, it's because Estel Dean is so well concealed. You know, that like it's because it doesn't have all the stars and scepters and branches that nobody really notices it. The most popular, best kept secret of the That's North right. Downs. That's my Sorry, theory. I always, that, I always see that phrase on brochures and I always laugh. <laughs> That's right. And now that's what I think when we're talking about Estelle Dean's. The, the most popular, best-kept secret. <laughs> oh, these glowing pools, man. These freaked me out when I first got here. I had sort of nasty aura just kind of floating around. Ooh, port. That's a that's a more yeah. modern one. Isn't it? I was just looking at the portcullis. I was just looking at the portcullis and trying to make up my mind about it. I don't know much about um, castle devices. How early were they using portcullis? I mean, like, what time period are we expected to expect? Was it is it congruent with the rest of the walls, or would this have been added later? And if so, by whom? I mean, I would have to think because the. The Cardolin, the Cardolingians were the last people ever to live here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like there. I mean, I don't think there is a later generation. Um, look at look at how the ragged ends on top too. This is a slapdash thing. Or warped and twisted over time. But Could yeah, it, it does. It doesn't. What's on this freeze up here? Oh, we've got a freeze. I love freezes. Yeah. This is all new. Ooh. No, this way, this way, dude. Wrong way. Wrong way? Yeah. Oh, oh but hang on. We got Back statues the... over here. Hang on. Wait a second. Oh, we got it. We got it. We got, oh. we got it. Hang on. Hang on. Look at this. Look well, at we'll take this. a look and see if it's the one I was looking at. Is this one? Let's see. Now that. Oh, no, this is a different one. That. Oh, it's busts. Yes, busts. This is the jumbo scepter of Anuminus right here. Okay, this is the one I was talking about that you can see in Anuminus. This whole thing, oh, the, this is no mere little pitchfork scratching, right? Like we see down here on the keystones of the arches. No, this is the full deal of the scepter of Anuminus. It really wasn't until I saw this image for the first time that I realized that this must be the scepter of Anuminus. Um, yeah, this just screams, look at me. And it's got all seven of the stars with the one star up uh-huh. above still pointing in the wrong direction and the uh-huh. uh, six stars down below. But then we have the extra... So that's just kind of already sort of super extra Dunedine goodness, right? But then we get yeah. the two busts. Two busts... These tacky, tacked over busts that are intruding on the original design. Which really does look like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks like this was put on as an afterthought to glorify the two people. Above, you know, above maybe the kings themselves. Yeah. Or maybe it's a like a later king with really bad taste. Uh, yeah, sort of a Louis XIV of the... Yeah. Cardo- <laughs> the Cardaloonies. <laughs> right. Um, so these are both just busts of... They're both women, right? I mean, they look like the witches we get in Angmar. Right. That's true. Well, that would be unsettling. But I can't imagine that they are, because uh, if this were actually, like, 
if these were graffiti busts, you know, meant to desecrate this, it, they they would look a little worse than that. Not to mention the fact that they wouldn't have the same vine beneath them on the pedestal there. Or this is an alliance with evil men. I think. Look beneath the busts, artichokes. Would you believe it? There are artichoke petals, the same petal kind of design as make up the artist. Very similar, anyway. Carved oh into the floor beneath the the little <gasps> pediments that oh the busts are on. Yeah, you right? really gotta angle your camera like yeah. all the heck up to see this. If you, if you can manage it, yeah, just zoom your camera out all the way and then just hover over it like a helicopter and you can see what we're talking about. Yeah, there's the artichoke in the middle with its three points. Uh-huh. And then we've got these two other things on the outside that have the this spiky thing. What's this spiky thing? I would have thought it was that just... looks like scale mail. Yeah, or like the Iron Crown. I Yeah, but softer. Yeah. Ah. And so these two things off to the side... So we've got the three petals in the middle, and we've got the then these differently shaped kind of two-pronged, almost like the top of maple leaves kind of things. That I don't understand <laughs> them because I've not seen them. I, I've never seen. I've never noticed that associated with our with artichokes. But we got the same design over there. Oh, look at that one! Look over here. This looks like something on top of the stone. It's not symmetrical. This kind of center line radiating out at an angle in the middle of this other petal on the other side of the artichoke. Hmm. Um, yeah, Hrothgar, there are seven total points if you count, because each of those side things has the two points, right? So you got the two points on the side things, and then you've got the three points from the artichoke in the middle. The artichoke is right under the the you know the pillar upon which the bust is set and oh, hang on this is hard to angle and zoom in but i think those are artichokes also right under on the platform on which the busts are sitting on top of the pillar yes you can see the same kind of artichoke design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the very base of the, yeah. the little plinth where the busts are sitting. Yeah, yeah. That, that one was much more evident. Yeah. Except now they're looking like flower petals or something. Pumpkin seeds. How many do we see? One, two, three, four, five, six... Seven, eight, nine. I'm counting nine. Just like the vines and leaves around the bottom. And those two are always associated. We... we... Hrothgar wants to know if it could be the crown of Cardolan. It seems possible. Matt was just suggesting a connection between those... those leaves or petals that I've been calling artichokes mostly in jest and um, and the vines itself um, the leaves see, the, yeah 
Are we counted the leaves on the vines here too? Yeah, they're nine. Um, I, I believe nine here? there are two branches that I think are just branches. The one that the one that goes up, up to the left and the one that goes down to the right. But then okay. I th- I think apart from that, because there's three leaves on the right side, three leaves on the left side, and then the three leaves in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, Aragorn, it could be the nine ships, symbolizing the nine ships that the Numenorians sailed on. I mean, nine is an important Numenorian number. Um, three times three, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are nine artichoke petals around this podium. Golly. Yeah. I don't know, yeah, uh, Gussie Moose was just saying they were a minor of ship sails. Um, that seems, yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it's so odd just to see them out of context though. I mean, whenever we've seen, you know, nautical symbols in Numenorean places, they've been tolerably, obviously (laughs) nautical, like with sails with boats underneath them, you know? Yeah. Like the, the carving of, uh, Aaron, uh, um, Arendel, right? Yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> I was blanking on my it's okay. It's getting late. I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. O'Malley was noticing. I, I was said I was what I was noting noticing too when I noticed the artichokes around the pedestal. But yes, there does seem to be some kind of sword or something. It almost looks like there's something lying on the left hand side. Uh, the statue's right, sort of lying stage right here uh, by the left hand. Uh, oh, yeah, it almost looks statue. like it's supposed to be an item we were going to pick up or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> maybe it's the stolen sword from that one man's coffin. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Okay, so you want to see my, the freeze yeah. that I found? Yeah. It's not quite as impressive. Where's the freeze that you found? It's, all right. Uh, let's see. It's back out the way. So we were looking at the portcullis, and then I noticed there's something behind oh, the portcullis. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice it. Oh, man, how do you see that? Can you get up close to it? Can you see it from under uh, there? Just go from under the park call us and you can look up about where I'm standing. Ah, right, because there's the gap in between here. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. So we've got... That's got to be... That's got to be Oendo, Isildur, and Inarion, probably, right? Three kings with uh-huh. swords. Um, are they wearing helmets? Yes. All three of them are wearing like helmets. Hanskull helmets. Yeah, they're all three wearing like helmets and robes with swords. Um, that looks like um, it looks a lot like the colossal statue of Elendo um, in Evendim. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exactly like, but yeah, but quite like. Um, we saw a version of over over here as I was on the way to the other one. Um, we saw. Where is it? Sitting on its side over here. Yeah. This guy. This is up close. This looks like the same dude. Right? Like this was fell off of another similar freeze. Well, I'm in trouble. Right. So, right, let's see. so oh, you yeah, can see yeah, it up yeah. close. Now, is, do you think this is the same face or is a different one up there? I don't know. I mean, this one seen from this close. Oh, Goodness, where did I, why didn't I notice these artichokes before? Look at these artichokes over here. Yeah. Oh, I see them all now. Yeah, they do look more like a crown now that we're thinking of it. We don't have... Those weren't elsewhere. Why are they here? No, it's not exactly... It's not exactly the same as the artichokes we saw in North Downs. 
It's very similar, this, except for the fact that in the North Downs, it was just the Central Three. Uh-huh. Now we're clearly getting the... Whoa, bog larker in my personal space again. Um, uh, yeah, with that... Well, especially with that strip beneath them, right? It looks uh-huh. rather like crown-like. Huh. And so then, but why isn't it? Why doesn't it look like that in the gazebos then? In the gazebos, it's just the three, and they don't have the line underneath. Weren't they layered up too, or am I just remembering wrong? Well, maybe. Uh, we got to go back to the artichoke gazebos, but um, yeah, that's okay. We'll be headed back to them after we're done in the Barrow Downs, which actually I think today, this, I think I think we're done after today. So next time we'll go back to the North Downs and we'll we'll, we'll pop into the artichoke gazebo, uh, fresh from this experience, and uh, and do some do some more comparison. But assuming that this is the uh, same dude as the dudes up above the portcullis, um. This guy looks unhappy. Um, he's posing like a dead guy on top of a tomb. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what it's supposed to look like with the with the sword, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Um, the other one, you felt like it more, especially if if they were wearing helmets, so you couldn't see out of. Right. Yeah. Did the All right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go back. I want to compare now. Okay, let's see. Up. Uh, hard to tell. It, it does. I think I can see the face better now that I know what I'm looking for, but who knows? Yeah, I, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. I thought that it had a, the helmet had a nose guard, but now that I look at the other one, it just has a big nose. Um I think it's his natural yeah, it's nose. Those, it's got those Roman cheek guards. Yeah, it's got the Roman cheek guards, and then you can see his actual nose. You can vaguely see, like, his frowny face, the same frowny face he was wearing uh, in yeah. the other. But, uh, yeah, the, 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 the oblong shape behind their head and the way their hands are positioned, they, yes. they look like dead kings. Yeah, the hand position is the same. Um, uh-huh. uh, Boomful asks me, who am I calling big nose? Yeah. Uh, maybe I said blessed are the big noses. Um, I, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you gotta think it's probably a Wendell and Isildurn and Aryan. Probably. Uh, I mean, who else would it be? I mean, it could be, of course, some random, you know, Cardolan dude, but probably not. Uh, yeah. Now those, uh, those two spooky chips chicks up on that big wall though we don't know who they are so no we have no idea and really no way of knowing who they are no. um because there's nothing distinctive about them at all just two women with hoods up which was particularly strange really for a bust yeah, seems to we, me we've only seen them in the sorceresses from Angmar. right which is a disturbing kind of parallel but it's not that only sorceresses where you know, hooded robes, uh, you know, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to stereotype, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, yeah, we, we don't want to pigeonhole that particular fashion choice, but still. Um, uh, but it does also explain why the ground here has, you know, gone sour to use the pet cemetery expression. Right, right, possibly, possibly. 
um, that there could have been sorcery involved. I can, I still kind of, I mean, and I hear you with the, that it's certainly you're right that those, those niches in which those busts were, um, does certainly look like it's built after the fact and, uh, um, certainly in questionable taste, if not inactive, uh, you know, scorn of the original iconography that it overlays. Um, but, but I can't think that that's an act of desecration. I mean, that's super subtle, right? I can't imagine I, I don't know, that. No, I, I don't know about desecration. Yeah, it, it sounds more like a, this is our home now. This is this is the act of somebody who's the new tenant. Right, maybe, but wouldn't they be like effacing the Numenorean symbols entirely if that were the case? If they were going to go to that kind of trouble? I mean, again, it's one thing to say the enemy comes and takes it over, and they cast down all of the. You know, they like scratch out all of the Numenorean stars and say, like, we're, you know, Numenora is no more, Cardolan is no more, we're getting rid of all the Cardolan symbols, and, and we're, that's one thing. But just to be like, we are going to construct elaborate memorial statues which completely detract from the original flow of the, uh, of the, of the former symbols while partially obscuring them. Seems like a little bit over-elaborate and kind of half-hearted, frankly, for an invading enemy to do. No, it sounds like pretenders to the throne who <laughs> think they have the power of the throne behind them. And okay, they have no right. And they have no taste. Right, no taste. Yes, exactly. No, we, we've seen that. We've seen that with dictators who walk in like they own the Absolutely. place and say, "Oh yeah, you totally wanted me here." Absolutely, no right. So. Tasteless later sovereigns. I can totally believe that's that that's that's very much what it does look like. So, um, and the fact that they're aligned with Angmar fits in what we know with some of the later kings who went kind of little. You know, Maybe they, though, they, that's more of a Rudar thing than a Cardinal thing. Trust in the wrong people. Who right. Told them they right. Could get places. Yeah, it does happen. It does happen. But I'm not sure that that... I don't know that they ever bowed down to Angmar and Cardolan, though. I mean, they forded up here. I mean, this is the last stand of the people of Cardolan right here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then... Uh, well yeah, exactly. <laughs> then they got they got destroyed and, uh, and then Cardolan was done. Maybe this is just a little pocket-isolated incident. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we can see it. The place has gone literally to rack and ruin. So. Yes, absolutely. What, what what happened to conspire to its downfall? Yeah. Well, it was the people of... I think it was Rudauer who took out Cardolan, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, that goes with it. Rudauer was, you know, aligned with the Iron Crown. So and you think that those are... seen in his castles, he is pretty, he is pretty ostentatious. So you're thinking that those are Rudauerin women whose busts those are up there? Those might be two okay. Rudauer and women, or two Rudauer and you know, allies that he. And if it's Rudauer who took them out, then it explains also why the scepters and stars haven't been removed. Nope. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But All right. I think it fits the whole narrative. Well, I guess it's pretty it's well. Just, yeah, this is a it's a good theory. Now I'm looking up just to make sure I don't. I haven't missed any artichokes or anything, you know. You never know what you're going to find in this ruin. More upside down stars. Yeah. That big tower. That big I was tower just really looking at that big tower. That's exactly. I like that. I want to go there and they won't let us. <laughs> yes. It looks newer, doesn't it? It's different yeah, color it stone. Cleaner. Less cleaner, less decrepit. worn. Absolutely. 
surrounded, you know, girdled around with the uppity pointed seven stars, seven pointed stars. No other symbols of any kind, just walls and crenellations. Uh-huh. Bad little buttresses to hold the railing up, so... Yeah, exactly. I think that's... I mean, obviously you must have had to get up that from inside, which I don't know where you get inside, uh-huh. but... <laughs> well, hey, you killed something. <laughs> no, I looted a corpse. Oh, you looted a corpse. Okay, all right. You know, like you always say, I should. Yeah, that's right. I'm giving you all the things. Um, <laughs> I, you don't want this crap. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't need that. Um, okay, so I'm looking around here to make sure. Oh, see, this is a lovely defensible spot. Oh, look how some of the look how some of the bits of the ruins have tumbled down the hill. Oh yeah, so cool. Battle damage. Yeah. This is like what my brothers and I did when our models fell apart when we were building them. We just right. make it part of the damage. Right. Set fire to a few of them just for added effect. Right. Cool. This is why kids need to be supervised. <laughs> Trying to see if there's anything on the other face of the tower, but I don't think there is. All right, well, really? it's getting late. That's I should. Just a um, creepy view. <laughs> I should. Uh, I should. I should let everybody go. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you for exploring the ruins with me. It's always fun, um, and uh, I think we've uh, come up with some uh, some very interesting stories uh, to explain the ruins that we see here. I still gotta come up with some explanation of the five stars. That one still beats me. Yeah. Mostly because yeah. you know but you know what it makes me realize? What it makes me realize is I don't understand the seven stars. Why seven stars? Me I mean I know like, it's in the it's in the poem, but that doesn't explain it. It's not like the poem set the rules, right? I mean like so the the seven star yeah. the seven stars are commemorated in the song, but why? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was I was mistakenly equating them to founders of the of like chieftains or something like that. Like I was like my brain right. was equating them with the twelve tribes of Israel. Like, right, 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 know, oh. right. No, because so, I mean you've got. I don't know. I mean, as as a Numenorean symbol, it's the symbol of. Uh, I mean, it's it's. You know, you've got the, you know you've got either three or nine, right? With. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, with the nine, you know, the three kings and the nine ships and the, um, yeah. So yeah, why why would five be anywhere here? Okay, that's your homework, everybody. Right, but <laughs> I, I feel like in order the seven stars. I feel like in order to answer it, I got to figure out why seven in the first place. Yeah. Um. All right. I don't, I don't even know. Oh, man, and we're not seeing you until, like, after the New Year, right? Yeah, that's true. We have a two-week yeah. hiatus here because, uh, so next week is uh, holiday week. Um, I will be away next week, so we'll be back for class the week after that, the day before Tolkien's birthday. Uh, so our, our sort of anniversary class where we're going to get super close to Bree. Uh, by the anniversary of the beginning of our uh, of our 
of our discussions here. So thanks for it. So don't forget one fortnight from tonight. Not, uh, not one week. I will see you guys in two weeks. And thanks everybody for joining me. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. That's right. Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.